Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, you are listening to a Rattledgeon Broadcasting premiere podcast, Damn You Hollywood, and here's your host, Robert Winfrey, yay! Yay! How's everybody doing tonight? We are all so very, very fortunate to be able to be here to talk about movies, to enjoy all the wonderful freedoms that we enjoy. It's It's truly a beautiful thing. What? I don't have anything clever for this set. What do you want from me? There's nothing clever I can do with this pair of movies we're talking about. I have no I have no segue. I have nothing. Who's ready to, who's ready to shake, rattle, and roll, baby? Yeah. You, Robert Winfrey, I'll tell you what, man. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. I mean, you, like, nothing? I mean, the man only has like a catalog of a bazillion songs. Wise men well, say we, only fools we, rush into podcasts. Just love me, Tinder, Robert. Just love me, Tinder. Love me true, Robert Winfrey. Well, we all know Mark's a big fan of the ghetto. <laughs> you ain't... God, you ain't lying. In the ghetto. Uh, tonight, Mama the said everything was all right. <laughs> in the wire. In the Baltimore. All right, go on. Moving on. So tonight, everyone, we are discussing two movies both of which had theatrical releases, one of which scraped its way to number one in the United States over the weekend because everything else was a bit depressed. Uh, that would be Baz Luhrmann's biopic on Elvis. And we'll also be talking about The Black Phone, where Ethan Hawke realized he's 50 and decided, okay, I can be creepy now. Not you a joke. Introduce- That's why you took the role. You should introduce the panel members, including me. I'm here. Yeah, you are, aren't you? Good for you. <laughs> I'm so here. So joining us on this particular episode, we have the Teasleys. Both Amber and Jason are here. Amber really wanted to talk about Elvis and Jason. Well, we yeah, we try the you can you can yeah, you can go anywhere you want. We, you can't we love here, Jason. <laughs> we love Jason. So actually, here's what happened because my we wife are very was happy to have like, Jason here. My wife was actually wondering like why are we talking about Elvis and the Black Phone? Like Lightyear and Chippendale made more sense together when we did um Bubble and um uh, what was the Dell. You know, that made sense. They were two new animes, stuff like that. You know, so as I'm pairing movies together, I try to find some degree of commonality. What was the commonality between the Black Phone and Elvis? And the problem was the Black Phone had been delayed from earlier this year. So this it was one of those horror movies that Jason when he sent me his list was like, can we please do the Black Phone? I really want to talk about this. And it was on a free week. I'm like, that that's great. And then it moved to the same week as Elvis, and you can't tell Jason Teasley no. So <laughs> you, you cannot deny Jason Teasley. Amber knows what I'm talking about, right, Amber? He's those little man yeah. tantrums? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> right. So I did not want to see Jason Teasley throw him. It's fun because he's on mute now, and he, and, and he has to unmute himself to talk. So I could just keep going at him. Uh, so Jason was just throw himself on the floor and be like, nobody loves me, nobody cares. If I'd cut the black phone, so instead we, we're doing them both, and I don't have I don't have any more time to do two of these, so we're doing them at the same time. That is literally the only connection 
between Scott Derrickson's The Black Phone and Boz Lerman's Elvis. Um, let's jump into Elvis. Oh, Amber, you requested to be here because you're a fan. Tell me about that a little bit. Um, I've been in love with Elvis for pretty much my entire life. Um, <laughs> it was, my grandmother was in love with him. My mother was in love with him. And I kind of just, I've seen every movie I've seen. I've had, I have every album. I have heard every song I have been to Graceland. I have really? been in least in the Lisa Marie plane. Um, wow. I have, just about anything you can do for Elvis, I've been to. Um, oh, thanks I love for his music. <laughs> I love his music, his movies, which, yes, they're kind of, you know. They are what they are. Eccentric, yeah. But, I mean, I've seen just about everything. I mean, I love it. I've loved him my whole life. What about you, Jason? you a fan of Elvis, or you're kind of here because it's, it was the other movie we were talking about? I'm a fan of my wife. Um, sure. I guess so, that. uh you know, we did a I did surprise her with a trip to Graceland. We stayed at the Grace uh, guest house at Graceland. Uh, we did the VIP tour of the grounds and everything. So, and it's it intrigues me just his life. Uh, and this movie uh, actually shined a lot of life light on stuff that I didn't know. I mean, I, Amber's made me watch some of the movies and everything, but to get some of the backstory and stuff that you know i could piece together from the audio tour that we took uh that coincided and meshed up with this movie was really interesting um before we move on to this movie in particular what are you robert you know i know i know you hate nirvana and i know you hate the beastie boys and you know you hate led zeppelin and i know you hate um music but what's your take on uh elvis okay you started accurately, and that just got less and less true with each <laughs> passing word. I do hate Nirvana. That's very, very true. Mm -hmm. I do hate Beastie Boys in their one song, because that's the only song they ever released. I don't know why everyone <laughs> thinks there's more than one Beastie Boys song, but there's only the one. You're referring to Cookie Puss, I right? Like... Just stop. <laughs> Take I me enjoy let me, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I enjoy Led. Ze I actually enjoy Led Zeppelin. They're not my favorite or anything, but I do. I appreciate. Them. I'm. I might be confusing that with you just not liking the use of the one song in Ragnarok. Yeah, I don't like that song. That's very okay. true. But I. But Led Zeppelin has a as a catalog band. You know, like there's plenty of their yeah, stuff yeah. that I do enjoy. Uh, Elvis. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. Uh, I'm not a hardcore Elvis fan or anything, but I don't think I've ever. Mm -hmm heard anything of his i've disliked he had a great sense for music he had a tremendous voice he had uh what are you gonna say negatively about him musically yeah, yeah i mean you can I, be one um, of those idiots claims... <laughs> no he's he's great like he's genuinely yeah. great uh most of my musical tastes run into not you know the harder side of rock but you don't get that without rock and roll to begin with so right so I grew up, um, my parents are in their 70s now. My mom was a child of the 50s. I grew up um, in New York, WCBS-FM with Cousin Brucey. Um, and you could, we were a music and movie household, which is, I know, surprising from the guy that does the music and movie podcasts. Never would have guessed. Never. Not, no, it's, it's like, I, you think I would know cars better. So anyway, um, so every... Every day there was always 50s music, doo-wop era, Elvis, 
playing in the house. So I, that stuff is saturated in my bones and in, you know, in, in my body. Yeah. What? Whatever. So, um, can't wait for school to start back up anyway. Uh, <laughs> so I, it's not even so much that I was like a fan of Elvis. It just, it was a part of my culture growing up. And it's one of those things I can't get away from. I think now as an adult, I go back and I listen to his music and I go, oh, there's some, there's a lot of really, really great stuff here. I like Elvis as sort of a cultural touchstone in that. And the movie that we're going to talk about deals with this somewhat. You don't get that era of rhythm and blues uh the music that was the life's blood of black culture back then without elvis in the mainstream uh they were relegated to you know juke joints and you know the far corners of the earth um and then elvis comes along and you know in this very rich very uh vibrant cultural uh black music suddenly becomes mainstream and he is he is the door through which that passes and then without elvis you don't have rock and roll to a large extent so Elvis has always, it was always to me been a very interesting character, and his music is, you know, obviously part of the tapestry of this of, of uh, this country's culture. I want to talk about Boz Lerman for a moment. Who here? And I'm, I'll go back to you on this, Robert. Have you seen the Red Curtain trilogy, which is Romeo and Juliet, Moulin Rouge, and oh gosh, what's the other one? Um, have you? Are you aware of the Red Curtain trilogy? Aware of um... Strictly Ballroom. <sighs> Wait, he did the original Strictly Ballroom? The 1992 Strictly Ballroom par starring Paul Mercurio and Tara Maurice. Then Romeo and Juliet, 1996. Yeah, my mother... No, no, no. My mother loves that movie. Mm -hmm. I genuinely love Strictly Ballroom. <laughs> okay. Um, I So I wasn't even aware. Uh, I knew so, Bob yeah, Lerman so, did Romeo yeah, and Juliet. I, I, had no, I, um, I, 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 have no, I had no idea what Strictly Ballroom was. And I only just saw Moulin Rouge last weekend for the first time. Love Moulin Rouge. Uh, I've seen Moulin Rouge. I yes, yeah, so I've I've seen all three of them. Um, mm -hmm. He's a very stylish director. Yeah, I first I became think aware for at times. Somewhat, I, but I'm finding that with a lot of directors, they sometimes don't know how to get out of their own way. Uh, Amber, I first became aware of Boz Lerman from the video uh where sunscreen uh or advice like youth probably just wasted on the young uh sorry. yeah uh everybody's free to wear sunscreen that is the first time i had heard of boz lerman uh and i and i love that song it's, it's great um do you know what i'm referring to have you ever heard it before i've heard that song yeah i mean i graduated in the two late 99 so okay. it was pretty much in that came out in that era um, I did not know that he directed all of those movies. Mm -hmm. I do like all of them. Not a huge fan of Romeo and Juliet. Love Moulin Rouge. Mm -hmm. um, so I didn't know that. But yeah, I'm familiar with that song and everything. And uh, Jason, your thoughts, uh, your familiarity, if any, with Boz Lerman? Do I look culturally inept? So I've never seen any of them. Perfect. Well, Robert... Um, let's get into the plot synopsis such as it is for Elvis, but I did want to touch on that with you for just one moment. That Boz Lerman is definitely one of these very distinctive 
uh, directors. He has he has a style that I definitely think works well for like the MTV generation. It's a lot of quick cuts. And it's a lot of like Dutch angles and things and superimposition and in, in, on the uh, on the shot of different things happening. It's always very frenetic. Um, it's a lot of constant movement with Boz Lerman, and I think sometimes it works really really well, and sometimes it's headache inducing. So just a quick touch back on Boz Lerman, and then you can jump into the plot synopsis. Yeah, I'm I'm about 50-50 on Lerman's work personally. Mm-hmm. I didn't really care for his Romeo and Juliet adaptation for a variety of reasons. <laughs> uh, Moulin Rouge is fine. I'd have to rewatch Strictly Ballroom. I remember mostly enjoying it as a kid, but it's mm-hmm. a kind of kid-friendly movie overall. Okay. Um, I don't really care for his Great Gatsby. Oh, see, I, that, I, uh, I enjoyed it. Well, hang on. And that movie should... Let me let me phrase this properly. Mm-hmm. He's probably the right director in a general sense, and he had the right cast by a million miles. Right. But there was... Like you said, he couldn't get out of his own way. I think he missed the tone in a few very important positions. Okay. Uh... I mean, trying to compare it with, like, I mean, the other famous Gatsby adaptation would be the one with Robert Redford. Mm-hmm. And that one misses the mark because of, uh, like, limitations of budget, production schedules, and uh, you know, the the technology of the time, for want of a better expression. Mm-hmm. But I think that one did a slightly better job of hitting the right tone for you know, what Gatsby, what, what the novel talks about. Uh, Lerman's ability to run kind of hog wild with everything wound up being a celebration of these stupid excesses rather than a commentary on them and condemnation in certain instances. So that became, you know, I, I don't love that movie, but you're right. He's got a, he's got a style. He doesn't mind going visually dense, quick cuts. He will happily compress giant chunks of material which he does here a lot. Yeah. Uh, for better or for worse, I suppose. It's kind of depending on your thought process. Uh, yeah, this movie, as far as the plot goes, it just is a more or less accurate... There's... I say more or less accurate. This is dramatized, so certain things are exaggerated, compressed, condensed. Different points are blended together for the sake of narrative cohesion. But it's a more or less accurate recitation of the life of Elvis Presley and his relationship with the carny huckster, uh, Colonel Tom Parker, who was his promoter of record, and basically robbed him blind for a giant chunk of their relationship. Uh, The movie is narrated by Parker, which... I thought was an interesting choice. Yeah. Threw me off at first. I've been I've kind of been going back and forth on that. Um Do you wanna I, do you wanna do a recitation of things or you just wanna just get into the craft? Because if you do, um let me throw it over to Amber. But uh very briefly, it follows Parker first hearing uh Elvis's music in wherever they were in the south or in Louisiana, I think. Uh Somewhere, um, again, Elvis and his band had uh, a small, like, local record deal, and 
They got play on the local radio. They became a bit of a local phenomenon. Parker heard it, decided, hey, I can make money with this. <laughs> uh, got Elvis to sign with him, took him on tour, got him a national record deal. And they, from there, it just kind of follows his life. So we can kind of touch on, you know, the controversy that surrounded his music and his dancing, his very brief military service, which they, I fundamentally object to the notion that he was drafted as a result of the, uh, relatively believe it or not smaller scale furor that was kicked up around his presentation and by presentation you mean his jiggling balls sure <laughs> he certainly was presenting them and boz lorman I, I i talked about this with texas chainsaw massacre here'd be another example if that's not the male gaze i don't know what is there was a lot of lingering shots of that man's <laughs> juking and jiving, shaking and rolling. You know what I mean, Jason? Talking about the wiggle. The big wiggle. The yes, wiggle sir. wiggle. You can't have Elvis without the wiggle. No, apparently you cannot. And and the movie makes great pains to tell you that on a few occasions. Um, I, and I will tell you this. I've seen a lot of impersonators because I've been to Vegas. Um, like I said, I've loved him my whole life. Mm -hmm. And that's your major key right there is whether they got the wiggle and I'll give it to Austin Butler. He had the wiggle and there were times watching the movie that I thought I was literally looking at Elvis that I forgot that he was playing a character. I thought we were looking at Elvis. I'll give him that. And I'm not a huge fan of him, but right. yeah. All right, Robert, wrap up the plot synopsis. Uh, the movie ends initially with uh, more or less with Elvis's death. He's uh, just before his 40th birthday. Uh, then we flash forward to his actual death. Uh, the ending intercuts genuine archival footage of Elvis, uh, which I appreciated. Then it concludes with the death of uh, Colonel Parker, which took place much more into the 90s. Uh, and uh, ends with a couple of title cards about you know the financial abuse that Parker put uh, Elvis and his family and estate through. And how Parker died basically wasting away at a slot machines in Las Vegas, whereas Elvis is still Elvis. All right, Amber, what do you think of the movie? I loved it. Um, of course, I always say that about everything, but I think this one was just a little close to my heart because I've loved mm -hmm. him forever. Um, I was very happy with the betrayal. I felt like they did him very, they did really good justice. I kind of was hesitant on it, but then when Priscilla came out and said she loved the movie and she felt that it was accurate, I it made me feel a lot better because she's really picky about things being accurate. Sure. Um, I, there was a couple of things that they kind of didn't just, it was a major part of who he was that weren't really representative, but I kind of understand why they didn't put that in there. Um, just a few things. He was a germaphobe, which is really surprising. You, Priscilla talks about it in many interviews. He was afraid of germs. That's why he always wore long sleeves. That's why mm -hmm. he always wore long pants. <laughs> um, that was never really discussed, but I guess it was just a, it was kind of one of his quirkiness. Um, but I mean, I've, I've, like I said, I've been to, I've been to, you know, Graceland. I've been in the rooms you're allowed in. I've researched him. I've watched him my whole life. And, um, I was really impressed with how good they did and how accurate it was. Um, and I feel like the liberties they did take were just to be able to kind of move the story along so that, you know, 
you're not watching a four-hour movie instead of a three-hour <laughs> movie. Is, there is a four-hour cut, apparently. Is it really? Well, for I real? definitely would be watching that one. That all, yeah, it includes uh, some other sequences like uh, Elvis meeting Richard Nixon. Zack Snyder's things. Elvis. <laughs> um, all right, Amber, we'll, we'll come back to you. Jason, what did you think? I really liked it. Um, simply because, like I said, I mean, it's something that Amber enjoys. And I like when we share uh, experiences like this together. Uh, so it was really cool, like, knowing that we was at Graceland. We we was on Bill Street. We toured Sun Studios. We did all this stuff. And, you know, to see it representative, a representation of it in the movie was really cool to me. Um, when we first seen the trailer, Amber was really hesitant. She said, I don't want to see it. I'm scared to see it and everything. And as we seen more trailers... And, you know, Priscilla came out and talked about it. She got more excited. So she was really excited to see this. Um, like I said, I went along because I have the experience of being in Memphis, being on Bill Street, like I said, and on Graceland. And, you know, I've seen Elvis's tomb. I've seen his mother's tomb. Everything, it's right there on the grounds. And it is a beautiful estate, uh, to say the least. But it was really good to see Elvis the human mm -hmm. and not Elvis the superstar you know you've seen the the contrast you've seen the you've seen the humble beginnings mm -hmm. and you've seen the transition because and what this movie shows and this is something me and Amber talked about after the movie is Elvis put his fans above his own health mm -hmm. because he literally would be at exhaustion and still going out there to be with his fans. He was very fan oriented. And like I said, I think at, um, a lot of his drug abuse and stuff, I think stemmed from the fact that he could not disappoint his fans. Mm -hmm. So I like the movie. I was entertained by it. I saw it with my wife um, on opening day and it was a bit of a conversation starter some craft elements that I wanted to touch on without repeating what Jason and Amber said. Uh, we, we said it before. It's a very visually dense picture. Um, one of the things that I thought was strange as sort of a, a narrative device is that you do have Colonel Tom Parker telling his story. It comes across, Robert, I, I, wa I want to kind of go back and forth with you on this because I was curious if you picked this up too. You, you almost get the sense, the way the movie starts, that this is Tom, Colonel Parker's perspective on what happened. He's like, I saw this boy, and I had these needs, and I was going to use him to ascend to greatness. And then he said, I robbed him, and that's not what happened. That's not my story. And then he proceeded to get into the movie, and he continues to tell you the story from his perspective of who Elvis was. And then at the end, Elvis is like, you stole all my money, and you're a bastard, and I'm going to sue. And I feel like the movie didn't do the world's greatest job of bringing you along. I think it it told you well enough about Elvis's life and his relationship with the colonel, and that's all well and good. I thought, if anything, the best part about this movie is showing that almost father-son relationship between the colonel and Elvis where I thought it lacked, Robert, was I never really got a sense of how he was robbing Elvis blind. 
that seemed to be in the muck and mire of the movie and it wasn't particularly clear so when the movie's like you know it's the big reveal is that he you know is that he's stolen from elvis it wasn't nearly as impactful and then i go back to why are we having colonel tom tell you this story and then there's you don't see what he was doing with the money in his defense like it almost like he stops being he stops being that character and now he's just an omniscient narrator except that's not where we started with this and it's it's sort of an english englishy thing <laughs> to point that out like i feel like the narrative perspective changes about midway through the movie for no good reason and it gets a bit muddled what did you think robert <sighs> i there's a couple of things I think that are going on here. One, the crux of this story is not so much a strict biopic about Elvis as it is a story largely about the relationship between Elvis and Parker. Right, right. Like that That's more what they focus on than the and vast majority the of the events. Yeah, and I said that's like the best part of the movie. It is, and... So I think that's part of it, the fact that they wanted to fix to focus in and use that relationship as the kind of framework for the rest of the story was a big part of it. I also think there might be some too smart for your own good irony going on here. Mm-hmm. Where we're here to see the story of Elvis, but one last time it is presented by this carny piece of shit <laughs> who until his dying day was still like technically the promoter for like who will always be attached to Elvis in that particular respect. So allowing the villain more or less to be kind of our twisted uh, gateway into the story overall. Again, I, I think it's a little bit like too smart for its own good kind of a, mm-hmm. an idea, but I think Amber, that might be a little bit of what was going on there. Amber, you're, you're good with details. Just thinking about our Jurassic world uh, review. Did you get a, did you get a strong sense that the movie was showing you that Colonel Parker was robbing him or that Colonel Parker's perspective was I'm doing all the right things with this money. Like I don't ever feel like it's really addressed. And so when the, when the hammer drops at the end, they're like, but it was about the money stolen. Like the whole, to me, it just feel like the movie never deals with it up until the very end when they have to. But what did you think? Well, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not a big fan of Colonel Parker because, you know, he did, <laughs> hold Elvis to the States and, but there was things about what he said that were true. Um, Mm -hmm. But also one thing that's not touched about Elvis in the, in the movie that is very apparent when you go to Graceland was Elvis had a very extravagant taste when he hit that, that, um, you know, that star mentality and, Mm -hmm. you know, that he had a very expensive taste. He was also very, very, very generous. I remember mm-hmm. when we walked into one of the one of the uh, displays in Graceland, there was checks, just probably tens and thousands of checks with Elvis's mm-hmm. signature on them for just money that he donated a thousand dollars here, five hundred dollars here. Well, you're talking about the fifties and sixties. That's quite a bit of money back then. Right. Um. You know, Priscilla has said multiple times there was so much money that he gave away that they kept finding canceled checks after he died. Right. But I guess that's my, my that's, I guess that's my point, Jason, is I don't think for, for such a focus on in the conclusion, um, 
you know, and the, and the story told is that, you know, this man betrayed Elvis. There's no scene where, like, oh, you know, here's the books. Elvis is in the red. To Amber's point, he has this extravagant lifestyle. You don't ever get the sense that he's spending himself into poverty. Or I, I can't remember. I think I want to, the one example I'm, I can think of is Rocky Four, where there's a very specific scene about um, we gave power of attorney to uh, this lawyer. and four. Okay, five. Sorry, um, during because of Rocky Four, he gave power of attorney, to, yeah. and then they 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 gambled the money away. They, they invested it. The investments went uh, bust, and they lost all of Rocky's money. There's no scene like that in the movie, and I don't. So, so therefore, I think it takes away from the conclusion. What do you think? Yeah, and I think it was deliberate that way because, mm -hmm. and I'm going to put this in a perspective. Amber won't understand, but me, you, and Robert will. This is the early pro wrestling carny lifestyle mm -hmm. uh like they the promoter would do do this but by the behind the back he was robbing the talent mm -hmm. he put up the good front but he was robbing the talent behind the back most notable we would all agree was fabulous moolah yeah. uh you know kind of kind of that aspect but i think that's what it was meant to show and i think you know why they and i said this in the chat um, the reason why they had Colonel Parker narrating one, Tom Hanks is a big name draw. So mm -hmm. that's that True. you're going to get that name in there. So you don't want to waste, you don't want to waste that, but that budget, that allotment of money for right. somebody that's going to be basically, you know, villainized in this. So I think it was the, the whole, and I like how they done it because they done it really good in the carny lifestyle I'll, and he says this at the beginning you know may distract you while they why rob you blind mm -hmm. um and i think that's what he was doing with elvis he was keeping elvis focused on all these other things while he was betraying him behind his back okay. um one or two more craft elements and i'll kick it over to robert uh the performances i think are great i think austin butler did a fantastic job as elvis uh, i really did enjoy no 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 jokes now I really did enjoy what does seemingly go on forever, but I, I, it also, I think, earned its runtime of Elvis wiggling and jiggling in front of the audience and the girls uh, all aflutter as they rush the stage and try to tear him to pieces. I, it just made me laugh, Robert, because they're very distinctly, very specifically centering the camera on his crotch and they cut away to a girl and they cut back and they cut away and they cut back and just when you think they're done with this, we get the point. Yes, he shook his dick in an audience full of 50s girls. They keep doing it and doing it and it just never stops and it's like and I, and it, I did they not, did Boz Lerman and like his editors just not sit there with the dailies going, no, no, more penis. We need more of this. Like, Boz, they, everyone gets it. It's a two and a half hour movie. Two hours of it is this shot. But we got to move this on. And like, no. And Boz's like, I have to. We, we need more of this. And I, it's, I can't come up with a rational explanation for why that scene goes as long as it does, Robert. Yeah, this, this movie drags in places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. Especially uh, in the middle. The middle does a lot of montaging, uh, some respects to its detriment. Mm -hmm. They also, again, like they condense a lot of stuff. They, I'll tell you where the movie lost me. Vegas, when he when he comes back after the draft and everything, 
and he does the residency in Vegas, the movie kind of stops dead. Um, you know, you know, you know, it's kind of like Kristen Stewart in Twilight, where the cameras kind of uh, going around in a circle as the seasons pass, and it's meant to show like her depression. It's a little bit like that. It's like, here's Elvis descending into madness as he has to play the same casino and the same songs over and over and over again. And this is, you know, to benefit uh, Colonel Parker and his gambling debts. And that's fine enough. But to to the point that I was making again, this is yet an, another situation where Bos Lerman doesn't know when to stop. Like, there's a fine art in restraint. And this is yet another director who really seems to struggle with that, Robert. Yeah, that's a bit of a rough patch. Uh, they do a bit too much. There's a lot of repetition in this cut of the film. Mm-hmm. Like we just we get the same kind of notes over and over and over again, and it's again yeah. it, it, it does drag a little bit. Uh, I'm with you guys on Butler. I think he he did kind of the. There's an art to playing a very famous person, and. The, the trick of it is you're probably not going to look like them. Mm-hmm. But if you can find kind of the essence of who they were and encapsulate that, people will still go along with the ride. A couple of very high-profile examples, if you don't mind. Will Smith looks almost nothing like Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. They got lost in the role, for sure. But, yeah, like, you watch that, and ev- he's got the speech patterns down. He's got the presentation, the swagger. Mm-hmm. Like, he's got everything else. So you're willing to go along for the ride. Um, Frank Langella as Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. He doesn't look all that much like Nixon. But darned if he doesn't have everything about the man down from a performance perspective. So again, you'll go for the ride. Butler doesn't look all that much like Elvis in the face. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty obvious. <laughs> Elvis was a very distinctive man. Butler doesn't have that, but he's got the voice. And when I say he's got the voice, this could, if you're doing someone with a very familiar voice like that, you could be, you get into caricature pretty quick. Yeah. And he never goes over into sounding like a bad impersonation of Elvis. Like he just, he has the right sound. Mm -hmm. Uh, He has the right, you you guys mentioned the dancing. I mean, he, he's able to pull that off to the extent that, you know, how much of that is him, how much of that is stunt doubles, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I don't actually care. It works for the movie. Yeah. Uh, Hanks as Parker is a little bit up and down for me. And he, he, I... He gets, a, he, he gets a little penguin at times. You know, rah, 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 Elvis, rah, I'm going to, you know, <laughs> I'm going to rob your blind, see? <laughs> like, easy. <laughs> It's a little, gang, little, little like twenties gangster villain. A little bit. Uh, it's also that I don't care much. Um, and I get why this happened this way. Because again, if we're dealing with you know Parker as being the one kind of narrating what's going on here, of course he's going to gloss over his own shortcomings but narratively i think we needed a little bit more about like you mentioned some of his underhandedness yeah and i think you could have done that i don't like one of the things that really bothered me about this the more i've thought about it Mm -hmm. the implication that elvis's drug abuse was largely a function of parker's intervention and manipulation uh i i don't like that because that's absolutely not true Elvis was a human being. He was complicated. There was a lot good about him. 
he was a drug addict and he <laughs> managed his life poorly in a lot of respects and there's reasons for it and it's fine to talk about them but the, again the kind of tacit implication going on here is that well this one huckster is responsible for all the ails and woes of this poor beleaguered artist like no a fair <laughs> chunk of that was self-imposed and yeah. it's okay to say that yeah i don't i don't love the idea that we're going to 100 percent lionize elvis as if he walked with jesus you know <laughs> like, like he was with utterly without fault um, I think it's I think it's okay to dirty up your hero just a touch. Um, I just want to point out something about the colonel, and yes. I don't know if I don't know if you he uh, when they're asking him where he's from, he actually says he's from Huntington, West Virginia, which is where he claimed to be from. Is where me and Amber live. Yeah, you I knew you, that he had said he was from West Virginia, but I did not know the Huntington part, so I was like, oh, okay. Are, are you all a bunch of carny hucksters? Is that what you're saying? No. <laughs> well, There's Mark, you, drug you, you've known me for almost 10 years, so I'll, I'll let you draw your own conclusions. Fair enough. You don't um, want him to answer that question. <laughs> so, uh, Robert, just kind of concluding so we can move this on. Uh, Derpy, wanted, Derpy Gaming, who's currently in our YouTube chat, wanted hey, us to Derpy. mention the mannerism. Hi, Derpy. Um, wanted us to mention the mannerisms of Austin Butler, uh, Elvis's mannerisms. I thought he did a really good job with that. Oh yeah, uh, great. I mean, I mean, you know, we talk, he told me. We yeah. talk a, a lot. Times. We, we talk about this a lot, Mark. The the actors who can do stuff physically, right? It, how for certain aspects of performance, it, it, you know, there's a lot of guys who, but I can do so good with my eyes. Okay, that's fine. It's a great mm -hmm. skill to have. Not knocking it, but there's more to performance than just that. There's so right. much more to it. I, I talked and, about that last night with river Phoenix and my own private Idaho, like the little, you know, ticks in your body and, you know, the, the, the subtle things you can do with your arms and legs and your eyes and your face that take something from a recitation of lines to a performance. Yeah. And he, he absolutely nails, uh, a lot of the stuff that Elvis would do and yeah. the stuff he does with his hands, the way he carries himself. Uh, I've never really seen the lip curl, though. You know, the... Did you all see that at all? I don't really I, think I, they touched I, I, yeah. on that. Yeah. 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 So, um, again, again, serious kudos to Butler for so much of mm -hmm. his performance. Uh, I was always a... Let me, let me put it like this. I, he never fooled me into thinking I'm watching the real Elvis. Uh, but... I can acknowledge again how good the how good of a performance it was because he definitely channeled the essence of the man, and I only bring that up because at the end when they kind of did the the interspersing of genuine archival footage of Elvis, like you know the difference. Now it's to his credit that it's not a giant difference, but you can tell the difference. Yeah. All right. Um, I'll just go one more time around the horn here. Uh, I, I've already said that I think it's a very busy picture. Um, now I think that also comes down to personal taste. If you're, you know, if you've watched the red curtain, any parts of the red curtain trilogy or the cat or great Gatsby, and you enjoy that sort of thing, you know, a frenetically shot picture doesn't give you a God darn headache. Uh, I think you'll like Elvis just fine. But if you're somebody who likes a little bit more, uh, just slow the picture down just a touch, maybe focus on some things. This one's going to drive you absolutely crazy. 
Uh, so I think this one's largely up to personal taste. But I think for the most part, this is a very well-made, uh, a well-made picture and a proper use of event picture making. It felt like a big deal. Like when I like I, the audience was pretty full that I saw it with, and again we saw it midday Friday. It was a pretty full theater. I, people were definitely interested in this. Um, I'm not sure if it was helped by the marketing. I didn't see, I, I saw a lot of trailers for it, but I don't know how much the uh, TV penetration this has made. Uh, maybe you guys have saw more of it than I did. I mean, like I knew it was out there because I studied the, the movie schedule, but not sure how many people knew this was there. Uh, so I'll be curious to see how well it does. And we'll talk about that in a little while. But anything else, Amber, you kind of heard us bat some things around. Any last comments before we move on? Um, not really, other than um, I think they tried to show that, you know, like you were going back to the part where Colonel Parker doesn't really show where he spent his money. But I think they, you know, they, they did try to harp on the um, gambling habit yeah, as it sure. was. But and I then, feel like they yeah, should they have definitely... They mention it once yeah. or twice, and then we like see him uh, playing blackjack at one point. But they don't. Like, it's there, but it's kind of a. Uh, it's kind of lip service to the point, rather than actually like letting the point be part of the story. Hey, you know what? We we, we talked to for almost uh, forty five minutes about an Elvis movie. We have <clears throat> never really mentioned the music. So, um, <clears throat> real quick, Amber. Uh, do you think I think in a movie like this, the music should be the star, even though you're, you're kind of telling you're, the movie is about the relationship, not necessarily the music. But without the music, there is no Elvis. So do you feel like the music was featured prominently enough? Um, there's a couple of songs that I feel like should have been, been involved. One of some of his more um, well-known songs, I kind of feel like they kind of hit the heavy hitters. Mm -hmm. um, they didn't really touch on his, I mean, they did touch on the gospel, but Elvis was his most records he ever won. And if you go to Graceland and look at the wall was for gospel music and they did kind of touch on that, but it wasn't a huge part, but it was a huge part of Elvis's life. I think that's, um, really, I think that's really actually a really good that. point. It's yeah. a really good point, Amber. If that's a, a big part of him, why the movie doesn't focus on that a little bit more or make it a little bit more obvious. I can well, tell you. Go ahead. Curious. Yeah, no. In fifty words or less, go. Because gospel is kind of a dead genre of music at the moment, and Baz Luhrmann would rather utilize. This has become a trend in hip hop over uh, songs recently, uh, over the last like three, four years. People will sample bits of Elvis songs and then uh, use them as, again as samplings throughout the course of their own music that are kind of spins on some of those themes or whatnot. Uh, that that's a real thing that's been going on for a bit. So. Okay, they um, they use that free pretty frequently actually throughout the course of this movie. So you get uh, there's stuff like when he's going into some of the various clubs or whatnot, you get bits of an Elvis song, and then you will have the that that has been sampled, and you'll get the more contemporary hip hop music that plays over a lot of that. Sticking with you for a second, Robert, I'm reminded of our reviews of Luke Cage, where you're like, if I have to hear one more concert in this superhero drama, I'm punching a baby. So too much music for you, not you know, uh, not enough music. What? Where, where did you land there? This is a musical, functionally, as <laughs> a like. That's part was of the buy-in. Like my my with Luke, No, <laughs> no, it wasn't. Which is part of my gripe with that particular. Like it, it doesn't. 
I don't think that his uh, I don't think that Luke Cage was a musical. It was just, hey, we can throw a bunch of music in here and waste everyone's time. This is a this is fundamentally about a musician and is presented in some ways, again, with like a, a, an almost musical esque uh, sensibility mm-hmm. to it. So, yeah, that's part of the buy in. I don't object to it. Uh, there's a bunch of the I'm kind of with Amber in the sense that the selection that they went with was a little bit odd for, for me. Like they, they waited a long time to hit some of to hit some other songs that he, like they wait, they saved uh, in the ghetto until the act literal end credits, mm-hmm. which uh, again, like that, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. You know, you had the very famous, you know, dream song that he played on that television special, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, in the ghetto was not too far removed from that and was every bit as much the kind of, you know, protest point of view song that dream was. And they just, they ignore it because Baz Luhrmann thought it would make more sense to play it over the credits. Jason, um, <clears throat> I'm going to give you the last word here, but before I do, Derpy had a question for us. Uh, hi Derpy. Uh, does Butler deserve an Oscar? That's the question. What do you think, Jason? You think he'll get at least a nomination? No. Uh, and I think it's going to be one of the Oscar snubs that will catch the ire of a lot of fans of this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he deserves at least in the conversation, but I think you're going to get um, a snub for a more well-known actor with a let for a lesser picture. Okay. Um, your thoughts on the music and then we'll go, we'll write into the critical review. I mean, I, I, I think the music was fine. Uh, like, like we've already discussed, I think some of the songs that they omitted Mm -hmm. were very key songs in his career. Uh, and they should have included them, but, I mean, I don't like beating a dead horse. I mean, you guys have already covered it, so. If you had something new, if not, then we will move this on. All right, folks, here we go with the critical review. Are you ready? No! I said, are you ready? No! No, God, please, no, 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 no. All right, so the movie was uh, fresh for the critics and has almost a perfect score for the audience with 2,500 verified ratings on Rotten Tomatoes. Their critical consensus reads the standard rock biopic formula, biopic, God damn it, <laughs> the standard rock biopic formula. You know what? I'm sticking to my guns. Biopic formula gets all shook up in... <sighs> <laughs> it gets all shook up. Uh huh. Uh huh. Baby, I'm all shook up. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. And Elvis, with Boz Lerman's dazzling energy and style perfectly complemented by Austin Butler's outstanding lead performance. All righty. All right. So I don't know if Liz is watching tonight. Hi, Liz. If you are, I'm going to read uh, <clears throat> who I'm now calling the Liz rule where I, I try to read a combination of both fresh and <laughs> fresh and rotten reviews. What do you think about that, Amber? That sounds good. No, perfect. <clears throat> because we're damn you, Hollywood, let's start with a rotten one. Christopher Cross. Sailing takes me away. 
the ma- of Tilt Magazine, Elvis starts off with a bang and refuses to let up until the superstar and its narrative are both caught in a trap. They can't get out. I think the, the rule of these critics was let's have as many song lyrics in it as possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're going, we're, we're going full hack. Full hack, tonight, <laughs> I guess. Uh, Tony Macklin of TonyMacklin.net, Robert. Tony Macklin of TonyMacklin.net, Robert. You have used up your ability to goad me into that with some of your other shenanigans on this podcast already. I am not. I will do it on my own time, not on yours. Say the thing, monkey. No. Your fans demand it. Tony Macklin. I don't have fans and you know it. Tony, you have adoring fans. They are texting me as we speak. That's a load of crap. (laughs) Why do you lie to the people, Mark? The people say, Robert, say the thing. Tony Macklin of TonyMacklin.net. You know what? He's on a .net. I don't need to say it. (laughs) (laughs) Oz Lerman keeps Elvis alive. Oh, get bent. You Nobody know, maybe, needs to keep him alive. He just stays alive. Maybe you know what? Maybe Tony Macken might have written a better review if he wasn't a self-employed loser. Huh, Robert? Huh? 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 Moving on. Um, Rex Reed, is he still alive? <laughs> Observer it would, talk. <laughs> it would seem so. Wow. Uh, the corpse of Rex Reed from Observer checking in, a top critic. It's an epic collage of images and sensations, but it's not a movie. Yet, despite a surfeit of annoying flaws, I must add that it is also an occasional whale of an extravaganza. No, it's a movie. Yeah. That's, I I get the point that's trying to be made there, but there's a better way to make it, and this is not it. Your mom's a whale. (laughs) Thank you, Jason. Well told. Uh, Julian Lytle of Adobe.com. I joke with my friend this is going to be white folks' belly. You could watch Elvis without sound and still be captivated. That's not a reference I understand, but okay. (laughs) Uh, Let's see here. John McDonald of the Australian Financial Review. Elvis is pure fairy floss. Sickly sweet, colorful, and quick to melt into nothingness. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that does the performances a disservice when you like. Again, if we're talking about the heft of ninety percent of the craft, I think there's, I think there's some truth to that. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot that's going to stick with you apart from the performances. But to pretend that those aren't part of the film and whatnot is, uh, it's dismissive and it's insulting to people who put a lot of work into that. Michael A. Smith of Media Mics. Thanks to Elvis, the king will never leave the building. Look, you people have a wildly outsized (laughs) impression about how important movies are, and by extension, how important you are. Please stop. (laughs) Jeff Mitchell, I I can't with these puns in in the constant (laughs) use of his music. This is great. (laughs) Jeff Mitchell, Phoenix Film Festival. Butler will leave you all shook up, but Elvis could have used a little less conversation, maybe a lot less. <laughs> then, like, it's just a music montage. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, we're forgetting a critical element here of, of film craft. There's no conversation. There's no movie quality. 
<laughs> I what I like about this particular segment and all the years we've been doing Daniel Hollywood and I've read through Rotten Tomato reviews is how many of these I'm going to get to sing now. That's what I'm looking for at this point. How many more of these can I sing? Well, I mean, you could sing all of them, but you killed what's <laughs> remaining of our audience. <laughs> ah, we still have a fairly sizable audience left. Uh, okay, hang on. Oh, and we good. appreciate and we appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you. <laughs> hang on. Uh, what is it? No, you better say it, or we riot. Okay, thanks, Derpy. Derpy's still hanging out with us. Good old, good old Derpy. All three um, of our fans. <laughs> if you guys want to start a riot because I didn't say it on that particular occasion, I support you. Go cause mayhem. <laughs> no, stop encouraging violence. I keep telling you. Oh that. no, I it's encourage. I encourage violence. Fantastic. Gene Kaplan of Kaplan versus Kaplan. Elvis is Boz Lerman's love letter to the king of rock and roll. It's loud, frenetic, way too long, but ultimately high entertaining. Highly entertaining. Uh... Yeah, that's that's not entirely wrong. I, I, I'm gonna say this. This might seem a little bit weird. I di this didn't strike me as a love letter to Elvis, which may be just my interpretation of what was going on here. It's it's highly complimentary, but I don't get the kind of I don't full on get the hagiography hey, that we could have gotten here. You know, it doesn't shy away from his infidelity. Right. Uh, which they could have whitewashed. Uh, again, there's a lot of personal responsibility that they try to offload or imply offload and whatnot, but this is not the, you know, the again, the kind of glowing, please, please saint this person piece that yeah. we could have gotten and maybe have gotten in the past. So I think that's a bit of a misread. All I'm going to say is that lady's profile picture was the exact audience that me and Amber seen this with? <laughs> uh, I'm pretty there was sure a lot there was older a, people. Uh, I'm pretty sure there was an early bird special, and I you know, it help that we went on a Sunday. So, well, yeah, I mean, we definitely had the church crowd. Uh, look, she she looks like she looks like the crypt keeper, um, <laughs> but I'm pretty I'm pretty. You sure have not that, seen tales from the crypt in way too long. If you think that's the crypt keeper, well. I know. I'm oh probably my god, guys! Oh my god! All right, I, I we need to talk about our friend, good old Kevin Carr, a fat guy at the movies. Haven't read from him in a while. Visually stunning and flamboyant, with a fantastic performance by Austin Butler, it suffers from a bloated running time and some character misdirections. I mean, you're not wrong, Kevin. Even you know, even a clock's right what twice twice in a day. A broken clock is right at least twice a day, theoretically. Yeah. yeah. All right. You get away. You get away this time, Kevin Carr. But we're gonna find you again during the black phone. I'm not done. <laughs> I'm not done with you yet, motherfucker. Um, <laughs> you did the inverse of how most men handle confrontation like that. Normally, it's aggressive up front. We all realize we just had a testosterone spike, and we go, "Sorry about that. We cool. Yeah, we're cool." You started cordial, and then went, "No, nah, but I'm not done with you yet. I'll get you next time." <laughs> yeah, I like to lure them in with, you know, I like to lure them in with my uh, congeniality, and then fuck save, them off in the mosh pit. Save, save the discussions of luring in for the black phone. <laughs> uh, I'm going to read two more of these and then we're done uh, Vincent Mancini of Uproxx when the Velvet Elvis painting becomes fact shoot the velvet God, how in the world is that a review <laughs> how is that in any way helpful who pays this man and why are you being duped I think Uproxx just pays their people in cocaine 
I mean, maybe, but actually with the current with the current market rate of inflation, that's a better deal for the employer than the employee, believe it or not. I don't doubt it. All right, this this last one's for uh, Amber. Get ready, Amber. Are you ready? Are you ready? Amber? I'm ready. All right, here we go. One of our other favorites here, Armin White of National Review. This, <laughs> I love you, Armin White. Never change. Please never change. <laughs> You are you are legitimately like this Kevin Carr who I want to push down a flight of stairs and this Armin White who I want to be elected president. Um, <laughs> this shameless cultural jumble might make some kind of crazy sense for anyone who still thinks Presley the figurehead of pop vulgarity. That position has many successors and Lerman is one of them. Wow. Okay, you know, there's nothing a part of that that whole thing that is even remotely true. There was a period of time when that was true of Lerman, though. You guys may not remember some of the Fuhrer, especially if you were younger when Moulin Rouge came out, but there was mm -hmm. a bit. Mm -hmm. I, I remember, actually. I'm a member. All right, Amber, I hear you like to talk about Hallmark movies with chair shots. Yes, we do. We actually have an episode. <laughs> Why did you phrase it like that? Now I'm now I require a pro wrestling themed Hallmark movie with a chair shot to the head that sets up I, an amnesia arc. I will, oh, I'm I will sure there's probably been a boxing movie. I was gonna say I will absolutely come on that review and talk about it with you if you can find a Hallmark movie where motherfuckers are taking him that with chair shots. Oh, and here's, we'll put me, me and they'll hire we'll New we'll Jack as a it. consultant. It'll be great. <laughs> oh wait, he's dead. Sorry. <laughs> Concussion, a love story. Go. There you go. Home <laughs> is where the chair shot is. Chair shots and heart punches. There we go. <laughs> oh, Lord, y'all killing me. <laughs> yeah, we're getting ready to do an episode on uh, previewing the um, Christmas in July. And uh, we're doing season three, part one of season three of Chesapeake Shores. And that should be coming out soon. Um, and then we're going to do a book review. We're going to start doing books that are like Hallmark movies. <laughs> so so that, means those, that means those dirty books that she gets in the mm -hmm. mail, she's going to start talking about on the internet. Unfortunately, no. <laughs> Can't talk about those. <laughs> yeah, great. Uh, you can. You, you absolutely can. My little poor little heart and my, like, nervousness could never talk about that stuff on on a, on a podcast i would be like 50 shades of red <laughs> and i mean i opposed to 50 shades of it. i have to read gray. it i can't watch it so amber where can they find home is where the home uh, home is where the hallmark is you can find it on the chair shot uh website but it's also on spotify and itunes and it's right. with my uh friend liz all right, Amber. Thanks for hanging out with us. I, I think these have gotten progressively better. Like we started, you started off, it was like rough and, you know, you know like we hated this movie and then I hated it a little less. And this one, I think it was pleasant. I think you didn't, yes. you didn't walk away going, I hate all of you. You hate all movies. Why do I do this? I never hate all of you. I do hate some of your opinions about <laughs> yes. some of my favorite movies. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I will have to say for the last little thing here, it's hard to hate on Elvis. I will say mm -hmm. that. So fair enough. Bye, Amber. Thanks for coming on. Bye. All right. With the women gone, we can finally talk about some man shit. You ready, Jason? Good. Oh, yes. We, all, we, we can all stop sucking in our guts, at least. Yeah, exactly. Hey, I showed my belly. Unzip I showed my belly early. Unzip your pants. Let it all hang out. Let's let's do this, guys. Let's all have a... We're wearing, you're wearing pants? Shit. I knew I forgot yeah. some. You'll never know. All right. So 
Speaking of not wearing any pants, the black phone uh, um, is a 2021 American supernatural horror film directed by Scott Derrickson, uh, written by Derrickson and C. Robert Cargill, who both produced with Jason Blum. It is an adaptation of the 2004 short story of the same name by Joe Hill. The film uh, stars Mason Thames, Madeline McGraw, Jeremy Davies, James Ranson, uh, Ethan Hawke. In the film, an abducted teenager uses a mysterious telephone to communicate with the previous victims of his captor. For those of you who don't know who Scott Derrickson is, uh, Scott Derrickson directed the first Doctor Strange movie. Prior to that, Sinister 2, Deliver Us from Evil, Devil's Not, the first uh, Sinister, The Day the Earth Stood Still, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, um, and hey, Robert, and I'm going to need you to do an hour and a half on this, Hellraiser Inferno. I like Hellraiser Inferno. Do you really? You clearly haven't listened to the show that Sean and I did talking about uh, Hellraiser in a while. I mean, I did, well, but it's 12 hours long, and I, I couldn't follow say, the discussion. you, you got you to block out a full weekend. Hey, that that uh, I I forget you're not getting chemo anymore when you could just like okay I'll sit here and listen to this while I'm being injected. Yeah. Uh, no, we for anyone curious about what to watch if you're watching Hellraiser, one and two classics, three is ninety percent good, kind of stupid ending. Four's a little bit off the rails. Uh, Inferno is five or six. I can't remember which one, but Inferno genuinely works. Like something about the the uh, marriage of a kind of hard boiled detective story with uh, the iconography and dread of the good Hellraiser f- films really marries well together. Uh, so what do you what do you think? I mean, I just read you off his filmography, some of his best, <clears throat> some of his better works. I uh, if we can get away from the stupid discussions about. <clears throat> the first Doctor Strange movie, when you and I talked about it a little ways back, I mentioned that visually it was, I think, one of the better Marvel movies because it really did play with style and aesthetic. It had that kaleidoscope thing going on that made it stand out from the other more traditional-looking Marvel pictures. Um, story aside, everything else about, about it aside, I at least thought it was one of the better-looking Marvel movies. Um I haven't seen a lot of these other ones that he's done. So Robert and then Jason, your impressions of Scott Derrickson. He's got a good eye for horror. Again, I like Inferno. I think that was one of the few times that, uh, because what, for those of you who don't know, what the studio wound up doing with the Hellraiser IP to keep it was they would find other submitted scripts that they could kind of rewrite slightly to include Pinhead or the Cenobites and then slap the Hellraiser tag on it. And Hey, we're doing something with the, IP, so we get to keep it. Uh, and Inferno is one of the few that I think really works. Some of the others, uh, you know, Hellseeker, uh, Debtor, they kind of they're about fifty fifty ish. You know, there's some good, there's some bad. The la- the last like three are just the worst things you could possibly watch. Uh, they're just they're just awful. Awful movies. I mean, to the point where the last one, which was Judgment, I believe, is straight up seven. Yeah, this, uh, I mean, like you said, he has a great eye for horror. Uh, The first Sinister uh, that Ethan Hawke is actually in is one of my favorite horror movies uh, as of late because it just mirrors that really boating 
like Sense of Dread, uh, which I think he does really good. And, you know, he has a solid uh, horror background that he produce, that he puts out really good movies that don't really fit into like any specific uh, horror genre. It's just really foreboding and menacing, I guess you could say. All right, so what? Uh, Exorcism of Emily Rose is, uh, for to the extent that you think exorcist-based movies are good, that's not a bad one. Uh, he's got a good eye for it. He's good about building tension. So, so real quick, uh, so a little bit of history on the Black Throne here. Wow, what? what? You are now talking through like an oven mitt. What happened to you? Hello? Oh, you know what? I might, I might have gotten water on my thing. Is that better? A little bit. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so the Black Phone was theatrically released uh, on June 24th. It was originally supposed to be released January 28th, and then later February 4th, and then again delayed till June 24th. It had uh, its world premiere at Fantastic Fest on September 25th of 2021. It also screened at the Tribeca Film Festival and closed the Overlook Film Festival in June of 2022. And then it'll be available on Peacock, which is not a real service, uh, in about 45 days. So uh, this is one of the ones that you wanted to do, Jason, because you're trying to get us to do more horror. You like the horror genre. You want to talk the horror movies. Was there anything else about this? Or it was like, hey, it's a horror movie that's coming out. Was there anything else, especially about this one in particular, that you were like, this one, not that one? Yeah, I, I think it was just the, the marketing for this uh, really was intriguing to me because it doesn't give away a lot. Uh, that like trailers typically do mm -hmm. uh, nowadays. It kind of gave you the gloss over version. You knew that there was something going on. You you didn't get a full reveal or anything spoiled, in my opinion, of what's going on in the movie. You just get uh, basically cliff notes and um, little glimpses. And I really like the premise of it because it's one of these one of these movies that I kind of tend to gravitate toward a horror movie that can be based in reality mm -hmm. yeah and it, it's I, I I enjoy those horror movies why I don't know because you have the kind of like the detective aspect from it as well as the horror aspect and it kind of meshes really well so it kind of drew me in with that. So, and it looked, it looked great. I mean, Ethan Hawke plays a really great, creepy, like psycho dude. <laughs> All right. Let's get into it. Um, I'll tell you, I had two vibes going in, uh, coming out of this movie. One Hitchcockian in terms of tension and uh, <clears throat> in terms of tension and, building up the scares without having to rely on either gore or jump scares. There's one or two, but I think the art of the jump scare is placement, which we'll, we'll talk about when we get to the craft. But I wanted to say that up first, because I was asked, I saw this with a friend of mine, and I was asked, like, what did you think of it? I was like, this felt very Hitchcockian to me. Like, if you're into the sort of modern horror where everything is a chainsaw and a roller coaster, you're going to hate this movie. This, 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 felt, this felt like a movie from the 80s which also then reminded me of Carrie, um, the, the, the murdering car movie. 
when Sean Christine. and I, Christine, yeah, sorry, Christine, uh, when Sean and I reviewed it on the triple feature, which featured, which talked about car movies, um, one of the things I talked about was the language, the coarse language used, uh, and, and then it was the coarse language of its time. This one is a throwback to that era, and I really want to give the writers of the Black Phone, um, uh, Scott Derrickson and C. Robert Cargill, uh, kudos for being brave enough to make people talk like they would have in that time and not try to clean it up for modern sensibilities. You know, use of certain slurs and slang. I The movie feels very real, which is funny because it's a movie about dead people, but the movie has a very guttural, real feel to it. And it reminds me, Robert, of why I love movies from the 70s. Uh, why that, you know, that's an era of film that I don't think we've ever, ever been able to truly replicate. You have the occasional standout, but for the most part, you know, it's so far after the golden age of the talkies and just before the more modernization, widgetization of modern filmmaking to where not everything's an art piece, but everything's artistic. And it's one of the things I love about 70s film. Uh, and this, the black phone took me back to that time. Quick comment on that if you want, if you, or if you think I'm going a little crazy, or you can jump right into the plot office, Robert. Uh I don't think you're completely crazy. It helps that they're working with uh, pretty solid source material. Uh, for those of you who may not have heard me talk about this gentleman before, this was based on, and Mark mentioned, that's a short story by Joe Hill. Joe Hill is the pen name for uh, one of Stephen King's sons. He also wrote the... Uh, he's written some very good books, Horns and Nosferatu, uh, both of which I very much enjoyed. Horns, Horns has ups and downs. Uh, Nosferatu is pretty darn solid start to finish. Uh, he also is the writer behind the Lock and Key graphic novels, not the Netflix show that thing can burn. <laughs> please, please don't anyone talk to Robert about the Netflix Lock and Key. He will go into a homicidal rage. Uh, pretty close. Mm. But yeah, Joe Hill is a phenomenal writer, and it's not hard to see, especially in some of his earlier work, you can see the influence of his father. And I mean that as a compliment. Uh, Stephen King, if he does nothing else right when it comes to his writing style, he gives you a believable world. It's it's one of his like guiding philosophies about what makes his stories scary. It's not just the creepy monster. It's the characters being human and the world being believable. Yeah. And Hill inherited... Uh, he adopted a giant chunk of that to his uh, to his credit and his betterment as an author. So when if he's going to set a story in a particular time, he's going to go out of his way to try and make it authentic. This includes uh, clothing. This includes dialogue. This includes unspoken attitudes and whatnot. Like that's all there, and that's kind of what makes everything feel so real. So that helps a lot. Apparently, Joe Hill uh, had has pitched an idea for a sequel to our to the director. Kind of depends on how successful the movie is here, but I'd be interested to see what he might have come up with. All right, take it away into the plot synopsis. But like, uh, as quickly. as for the plot of this, we are in North Denver. In was it sixty three or sixty seven? Seventy eight. Seventy eight. Thank you. Eight or three. I don't know. I'll seventy eight. We'll go with that. I assume you're looking at the information. 
uh, where a where this suburb, more or less, it's not a full on suburb, but this area of Denver is being uh, harassed, terrorized, pre, uh, is subject to the predation of a child murderer played by Ethan Hawke. Our primary characters are a brother and sister, Finney and Gwen, who have some kind of loose connection to the vaguely supernatural, uh, something to do with their mother having some kind of gifts. Um, some of their friends are abducted and never seen again, for a giant chunk of the movie at least. But uh, Then Finn is abducted. Using, uh, making use of a his abilities, he's able to communicate with the spirits of the deceased children, all of whom give him advice and help about how he can escape from the situation. Several different attempts are made. Uh, he tries to use some cable that another kid had uh, stolen from something to pull down uh, and uh, to get up to a window in this basement room that he is locked in. Doesn't quite work. Uh, he tries to he starts digging a tunnel, but there's no way he has enough time and energy to actually dig out of a house. Uh, he tries to break through a wall and then out through a, a kind of like stand up freezer. That's on the other side of it. That doesn't work because the freezer doesn't open from the inside. And inevitably, he fights his way free by loading this uh, the hand the handset of this broken phone that he's been using to communicate. He packs it with dirt and other things to give it a little bit of heft. He baits uh, Ethan Hawke's character into attacking him. He uses some of these other things that he's found to uh, to fight back. He trips him into the pit that he had constructed, and upon landing on the grate that he'd pulled off of the window, his ankle breaks. He then is able to more or less beat Ethan Hawke to death with the telephone and then break his neck. And lastly, he uses some raw meat from the back of the freezer that he was able to break into to distract the large dog that's guarding the doorway. And he, uh, sorry, there's also a bit where he needs the combination to a bike lock that is on the inside of one of the doors on the uh, on the where he can get out. Uh, set against this is the is his sister trying to use her dreams, which are somewhat supernatural and clairvoyant in nature. She's trying to help find him. Uh, inevitably, again, he escapes. The police not only find him, but the house across the street from where he was being kept, where the bodies of the other children are being kept, so they're able to be reunited with their families and given a proper burial. And that's more or less the movie. Uh, there's good. There's uh, again, as far as plot goes, that's kind of it. Uh, I think as far as craft goes, like the biggest thing that stood out to me in this, dude, Ethan Hawke can be creepy as hell. There's one scene in particular where uh, the kid, uh, where Finn wakes up on this mattress in this basement and looks over and there's Hawk in like, he's got a mask that has like a different top and bottom pieces. And he's got the top half off, so his eyes are very visible. His mouth is not, because of, again, the configuration. And he says, you know, I'm hungry, and what are you doing here? And he says, well, I can't feed you yet. There's somebody upstairs. You know, it's uh, sorry, not going to happen just yet. Well, if you're not going to feed me, then why are you down here? And he just kind of looks back at him and goes, just to watch you. <laughs> and the kid reacts like you should react when someone yeah. says that to you. Looking at you like that, it is—it's it, genuinely revolting, and I, I mean that as a compliment. Yeah, everybody in the theater quickly needed a shower, and not the nice kind. Like it was like, oh god! Like he gave off serious pedo vibes, which is with the intent, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I have thoughts, but go go to you, Jason. 
this is your baby, so talk about it. Yeah, um, I loved it. Uh, the it kind of drug in a few spots with me, not like screeching halt. Right. But there, there was a couple of things that I was like, yeah, you know, you could have shortened that a little bit or cut it completely out. Like I said, it, this is the type of horror genre that I I thrive to is that real realistic base you know another one of my favorite horror movies is the strangers um you would simply you would <laughs> simply because you know it, it's based in this could happen at any time mm-hmm. um and especially back then in that era you had these stories running rampant of missing kids just vanishing and I think that, you know, uh, they did a really good job of capturing that essence in that time period of all the missing children and the paranoia that came along with it. But, you know, Robert talked about how good Ethan Hawke was. I'm going to talk about how disturbing the father was. Um, mm. that, a- that actor does that kind of stuff a lot. This movie was disturbing not only from the horror aspect uh from the the abuse aspect of yeah. a lot of things when, doing because when the, he's beating when he's beating the girl so she won't have dreams like her mom who's dead like right all, all the pain all the ouch yeah well and the fact that you know in like when we're introduced to him um I don't know if it was like, I think it was like mentioned in passing. He was a former Vietnam vet mm-hmm. and he came back and they have to be like church mouse quiet because he has these angry outbursts and something probably a li- He's probably a little bit hung over too at the same time. Like that guy drinks a lot. And I don't know if, if either one of you have children or not, but look, even on your best days with your, with your, uh, with a hundred percent good mental health, children will be annoying. So yeah, now I've got a daughter. So now you're, so now you you're traumatized <laughs> and a drunk on top of that. You you know yeah. You did a really good job of holding back from punching the lead in this. You know the way he was eating the cereal. And that's that's something that that's another layer because it's like Finn gets this basically escape from one horror thrown into another and it's it's really multi-layered and and i mean that's my opinion people might not see it as well well like me and to your point like when he talks about why he has these he doesn't do it direct this is for the audience more than anything but when he brings up to his daughter like i'm i don't have a way to process this but yeah your mother had your mother was special and she was also a bit schizophrenic and eventually the voices in her head told her to kill herself and eventually if you don't treat that properly those voices win right like because they're there all the time all the time all the time and they wear you down i don't have I, i don't have any kind of schizoaffective disorder but when it comes to some of my depression, even before I got this as a therapeutic technique, I had long 
I think is an unconscious coping mechanism. I had kind of personified my negative thoughts into uh, it, it, as a compartmentalizing thing. Like I had a, I had a thing that I know where it sits. Like it, it sits, like you can't see me, but it sits like three inches behind my right ear. And <laughs> that, and it, it talks to me. It's not where I thought and you were it, going with this. I was thought you were talking about like, if you have, if you struggle with depression for long enough and, and, and a depression that is intense enough, it can generate auditory hallucinations as well. Yeah, that too. So again, I never, I was always aware that it's me. Like I know this is something I created as a, as a way that mm -hmm. I can argue with myself basically. So I never, I was never like questioning reality. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it, it absolutely can if you're not careful about it. And because that's always there, it will wear you down. And eventually those voices will win if you don't treat it properly. And so now you have this father who's himself traumatized and a drunk and still trying to deal with the suicide of his wife. Right. And his daughter's going, hey, like mom, I, I've got special things and he is freaking out and he doesn't handle it well because who yeah. would, and I'm not, I'm not defending him in this. I'm not defending anyone who does this. I am saying it's incredibly human and it's not, it's not the irredeemable monstrosity that we get from other people. It's just damaged humans struggling through life. And that's another thing I was going to say. I, I don't think this is, and the depression and stuff, you know, I'm, I'm there. I'm dealing with it myself. The, and I don't really think, and this is what's funny to me, um, is I don't really think the kids had like some clairvoyance per se. I think it was just a, a grieving kind of, um mechanism that you know they started hearing these voices the isolation for finn he just started to kind of hallucinate these voices and just kind of you know because if you're in isolation your your mind goes crazy that's that's a you know in solitary confinement that's what it's been to it's been as a basically a torture for you to be in absolute isolation, no contact, like very little sound, like it, it's kind of a uh, being sensory deprived uh, and it's meant to torture you. Being in that, I think that's something that he did. And when the sister is left alone with the dad, because her and her brother had such a good relationship that they cope so well together that you get this thing that they it could I, I seen it as maybe that it was a thing they're coping not so much as a supernatural ability uh i've seen it as there she was lost without her brother he was in solitary so he started having these hallucinations and stuff she started having these dreams of things and just trying to cope with not only the loss of her mother, the abuse from her father, and the loss of her best friend, which was her brother. I think that's where I fell in this. And, you know, I see your point as well, Robert. But that's why I like this a little bit is because we all it's had... We it's all got a shining this. vibe. 
yeah, we all seen this, and I'm sure we all three took different aspects and different viewpoints of how everything was playing out. Well, I bring up The Shining in this case because there's an interesting read on The Shining, believe it or not. That the only thing that happens in that entire movie, this is Kubrick's version, the only thing that happens in that movie that is actually inexplainable uh, is how Jack gets out of the pantry. Everything else can easily be chalked up to hallucination. Uh, um, the kids, The kid's going a little bit nuts. Jack's going nuts. The mom goes nuts. Like there's very, there's not a whole lot of that. I mean, even the, uh, even the cook coming back, mm-hmm. like could just, could somewhat be explained as just him having a bad feeling. And he doesn't immediately then jump on a plane. He calls like, got a bad feeling about this. Let me, let me take a rational step here. And once, once the situation becomes less clear, then he takes more drastic action. That's reasonable. There's you could make the same argument for a big chunk of this movie, I imagine, about you know how much of this is actually supernatural and how much of it is just this you know kid struggling and uh, and his, this is how his mind kind of processes right. all the uh, stimuli that's going on. All right, let me jump in here with some of my craft thoughts, and then Jason, if you have more, we can go back to you. Um, I'm I'm in agreement with you that it kind of drags in parts. Uh, yeah, I like I like the movie a lot. Uh, I like the minimalist approach to horror. Uh, I like the 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 um, what's the word I was looking for uh, controlled. That's not the word, but um, use of jump scares. You know, it's, restrained. it's very thank you. Restrained. Thank you very much. Yeah, restrained use of jump scares to where it's appropriate and not just we haven't got we've gone five minutes we haven't had a scare yet so throw something at the screen. Yeah, there's I a couple. Hear... There were a couple here that got me. Um, yeah. there was there was three that got me. So the one I, that I get... the one that sticks with me was when they he gets the light going and he pans around to the kid mm-hmm. who's like hanging upside down. Yeah, uh, with his throat cut like that. That scare, like you know, it's coming, but it still right. gets you a little bit. That's that was a good right. one. Well, I think because he you know got the crab walk thing going on that back bridge, but um, it looked like he was impaled. But uh, I wanted to talk before anything else was said about the two child leads uh mason thames and madeline mcgraw madeline mcgraw is amazing in this she is the best performer i mean you guys are all about ethan hawk and rightly so he's good in this he's he's good in moon knight he's a fine actor madeline mcgraw is the star of this picture she her performance her line delivery her commitment to the craft i thought was beyond her years she is a revelation she's so good in this and they gave her some really great dialogue, and that's what reminded me of Christine, as a matter of fact. But I was finding myself missing Dude, any, her. Anytime you wind up having a character curse out God, like that takes some <laughs> stones. Yeah. Like, look, I've had my issues. Uh, I, I've never cursed at God. I may, I may not always agree with him, uh, and I, I am of course subject to, you know his whims and whatnot, as are we all, if you're a religious person, even if you're not a religious person, yeah, I'm really I am, so, and you are, but... I'm, no, hang on, not that I'm, I'm just shocked, because of all the devout people I know, <laughs> I would think you were the least one to be cursing God out, so I'm shocked. No, I've, like I said, I've never cursed at God. Like, I've, I've disagreed with him, I've been okay. angry, but I've never gone, you know, what the F. Yeah. <laughs> like, I've yeah. never in prayer said, what the F. <laughs> right. What the 
<laughs> yeah. So those he are... shook his head. He shook his fist at clouds, but never sure. for that frequently. <laughs> I, I, I frequently shake my fist at clouds. Yes. During this podcast, as a matter of fact, the very same. Uh, no, I, I cannot say enough good things about Madeline McGraw. I hope she gets all the all the roles and none of the cocaine Hollywood has to offer. She is fantastic. What a find. She doesn't even have like a Wikipedia hyperlink. So I'd have to like maybe check out her IMDb or something if she's done anything else. I've never seen her before. She was phenomenal in this. And I, I cannot say enough good things about her performance. And I would be remiss if I didn't bring it up and gush all over it. It's so good. But the, the, the I was starting to say before you jumped in with your, your um, thoughts on God and whether or not you'd like to meet her. Uh, I would find myself missing her in the movie. Like there's so much time spent on our lead and a little less than that with Ethan Hawke. And then you go to the cops for a bit. And, I, and we would go too long in the rotation of scenes before we would get back to her again. And I would be like, what's she doing? And I don't find myself doing that with a lot of movies. Like of all, a lot of the movies that we review, we talk about, and I know I've talked about this with Jesse, with some of the television shows where like the B and C plots are not anything I care about. I think the last thing I actually, uh, I actually binged, whenever we got to a certain character's uh, subplot, I would just fast forward through it because I didn't care enough. This one, I was a little less interested in what's going on with our lead in peril and more wanting to know what was going on with Madeline McGraw and what she was doing and how she would, you know, and whether or not her clairvoyance was helping with the case, things like that. Um, so good on that performer in the movie for showcasing her here. The male lead's pretty good, too. Um, you know, he's not he's not so bad that you forget you're, wa you, you're watching a movie or whatever, or rather you're reminded you're watching a movie. Um, Mason Thames is Finney. I think, I think he found and credit to Scott Derrickson for getting this performance out of him, the right pitch between I'm frightened because who wouldn't be, I'm a child who's been kidnapped, but I'm not such a complete wuss and pansy that I'm, you know, the audience is hoping the, the monster kills you. Like he, it was, it was a perfect pitch performance for what they were going for here to where you want to see him succeed, but you're, uh, you're with him in the peril you you know there are the, it feels like there are real stakes here like and again because this isn't one of the stupid ip movies you there could have been really some real bravery and he could have died i um, was I, I genuinely was not sure how this was going to end in right. that respect like we get towards we get towards that part of the uh the bit where it's like okay this is coming to the climax and you know the cops are at the wrong house right yeah and, and, and good, and good just, use of misdirection there I, I really an impressive use of misdirection Again, I love the minimalist, simplistic nature of the movie. It's it's it's, it's kid in the basement. What basement is he in? How how are they going to find him? Yeah, things like that. Um, even with the supernatural element, there was a guttural, visceral, real fear in that this man could fillet this child. Uh, not fillet, fillet. Though, let's talk about filleting a child for just a moment. Yikes! And this there <laughs> goes our monetization for this video. <laughs> Like we talked about it before, it's why I, I made the joke. But you don't, you never get a real sense of what he's going to do to him. But you are made to believe it could be anything sexual or physical or horrifying, and that is the great fear I'm, of this movie. I'm going with D, all of the above. <laughs> yeah, especially, especially, and not when, necessarily in that order. Yeah, especially <laughs> when you get to the uh, what's it called, the bad boy, bad little boy, or something naughty. Mm -hmm. The naughty boy, yeah, that's what yeah. it is. Uh, when it, he pans up and he's just sitting there shirtless <laughs> in the chair, just with that belt, like 
you're like, okay, what is he going to do if he, what, what happens here? There, there and, is more use of implied threat to induce fear than yeah. in any other horror movie I have ever seen. And it was breathtaking. Go ahead, Jason. Yeah, it's just that, that menacing. Mm-hmm. Like, you're, because when they're talking about it, he's like, no, he wants you to, he wants you to go up. And he, this is the next part of the game. This is where you play Naughty Boy. And you're like, okay, <laughs> the name in itself implies, you know, sexual undertones. Mm-hmm. But then when you pan up and he's just sitting there just like reclined with the mask on shirtless and he's just got that belt. And you're like, all right, is he going to sexually abuse him? Is he going to just beat him? What? Because, and what's interesting is this, because each one of the, the, the previous kids, it doesn't tell how far they got in this psychological mm-hmm. game. You just know that they got up to Naughty Boy, and you don't know anything past it. If they, if you know who got past that, who, how their demise actually happened, and it's just, and that's the psychological thing that this movie does so well because there was so much, like you said, implied horror mm-hmm. that it just has you like, it just like sucks you into this movie. Like, what's going to happen next? Okay, he didn't do this, so is that going to escalate the? escalate what's going to happen to him or is it going to kind of prolong prolong him and you it's that cat and mouse i guess you could say psychological teasing about what's going on because you never only thing you know is these people were these young boys were taken and they're dead you get hardly any of the backstory in between my only real pick at this movie is the pacing it's slow in the middle. It sometimes doesn't feel like it's progressing. It, it kind of goes in concentric circles at times. I think a lapse, a, a lapse of motivation for our villain doesn't do the movie any favors. You can get along without it, I suppose, but maybe there's a stronger movie here if we know why he's doing what he's doing. I guess it's up for debate, but I felt like the movie was lacking because of it. Um, but other than that, other than some pacing issues and because it's basically a two-scene movie. You're either in the basement or you're not. Uh, It gets a little aesthetically boring at times, but it's kind of a... What's kind of lacking in one area, it's more than making up for in another area. So, you know, the Hitchcockian tension, the the performances, everything else. There's so many good things in this movie that I can forgive the pacing and the dry aesthetic to it. Um, There's a way... We, we talked a little bit about this, and Andrew brought something up related to the Batman that I think I don't think I gave him the appropriate credit when he brought it up at the on the mm-hmm. review. the The scenery in the Batman is a lot of repetition, mm-hmm. and in a way that that you can do that and make it work, but I think that's one of the failings of that movie in particular. Is there's so much that feels like it's going in circles, yeah, and because we're going in circles geographically as well the whole thing kind of bogs down. Right. There's ways to do more limited sequences and keep them interesting. It's hard. I, so, I think let me be clear about that. Maybe the use of single takes instead of cutting up uh, the shots to, you know, to where at least you're, you're maybe getting some more artistic, seemingly artistic. There's some of that. Photography. There, 
Well, there's that. There's you can change small things, and if you're in a detail-oriented visual sequence, small mm-hmm. changes have big implications. So that can work to your favor. Mm-hmm. Here, we're trying to make this seem claustrophobic, and that works in the basement. It's there's a lack of geography to the exterior shots that I think hurts a little bit. Like we're never quite sure exactly where we are and what's going on and whatnot. So that hurts it. And then the fact that, again, we're doing a lot of the same locations. Mm -hmm. You can do this, but you have to find ways to keep it interesting, either visually or with elements of performance. Like their house is not a bad set piece. It's made more interesting when they have different things happen there. So that stops it from being necessarily as boring. But a lot of the exterior stuff here, like them riding around on bikes or whatnot, there's Mm -hmm. no real sense of... um, tension or the ticking clock that you kind of need if you're going to just drive around if you're going to follow a kid on a bike through a neighborhood i gotta have a really good reason to care about how long that shot is and i don't think this movie provides that case as strongly as it could i want to piggyback on that and talk because this my friend and i were talking about this um costuming it's not something we talk about a lot here a lot of movies don't stand out costume wise or they're so over the top and silly who cares the costuming here is representative of the time. So it's, you know, jeans and baseball shirts, that yeah. sort of thing. But it looks so grisly and real. It felt, you know, cr- all the credit in the world to the costuming department of making me feel like I was right back in that era, which sounds like, okay, but it's just the 70s. Who gives a shit? Not like they were doing, you know, 17th century France and nude. Oh, nuns. it matters. It, it, but it, but it, you're right, but it does matter. Like down to like the grease stains and whatnot. Like, really did feel like a window back in time and I, and all the credit in the world to the costume department. Yeah. And, and setting that aesthetic mm-hmm. contributed so much to this movie. Yeah. Because that gives you the, uh, cause I guess now we're so used to, you know, social media, the, you know, cell phones, you know, phone in every house. If you, multi, yeah. but that, not having that and showing how isolated things really were mm-hmm. makes me look back at a kid and go, you know, I'm surprised I never got abducted because we would <laughs> leave that. No, I mean, honestly, Mark, you, no. you could probably att- attest to this. Saturday morning, you got up, you ate, you watched cartoons, you went out. You was not expected to be seen, seen or heard from until the street lights came on. Then you were supposed to be home. I, I got in trouble for, um, I was only supposed to ride my bike so far, but I was a rebel and I wouldn't listen. So I would ride my bike, you know, like, for people who don't live in Uniondale, well into town on major streets, you know, to go to friendlies or something like that with my friends. And, my, <laughs> and yeah, my parents sometimes didn't know because I was out playing. Uh, but yeah, I was, I would ride my bike, hit, you know, hither and yon. Um, I could have been taken by anybody at any time or, you know, or my neighborhood at that time killed by a crack dealer. So, you know, I got it, Jason. Uh, to that point, there is no way anytime in the last 20 to 30 years that the police detectives in charge of looking for missing children take seriously the claims of a <laughs> child that child. my dreams are sometimes real. <laughs> Yeah, Never. that needed that needed some better explanation. Like, it, it, hey, send on, out the dream on. child. It needed better explanation, but at the same time, there is an element of okay, late seventies, desperate cops. They will do anything. Like they're, 
I agree that like if you wanted to do something more with the cops, we need to see their desperation. Like yeah. these people have been chasing this guy for a while. We need to see a bit more of you know, what, what what are we doing talking to this girl who says her dreams sometimes come true and just like, well, you got a better idea? We've canvassed. We, or you, or she goes to the cops and says, I had a dream. This, you know, go here for clues. And then the cops don't. And then she was Martin Luther King, okay? No, well, um, <laughs> shut up. Um, but the, so, so there, there needed to be a scene where she's proven right. And now they're giving credence to her clairvoyance as opposed, you know, I, I, I think the movie could have used a scene like that, Robert. I, I, I do agree, but. It, I'm just going with because you believe so thoroughly in this world. Psychic consultation was not the craziest thing that a detective (laughs) could get up to in the late seventies. Like that, that's not that far out of bounds, believe it or not. All right. Um, So go ahead and finish up your craft review, Robert, so we can move this on. Uh, You guys are right. You know, it, it does drag in places, but there's a wonderful commitment to the aesthetic, to the set design, to the costuming, to the hairstyles, to the acting, to the dialogue. You know, that's all given the appropriate weight to try and sell you on this time period. Uh, the acting's, there's not really any bad acting here to be found. You know, I'm with you guys, some being better than others. Uh, this is suitably creepy. You've got a few jump scares. You've got a great sense of tension and foreboding as a general rule throughout the film. Uh, I think the only thing I might have preferred was a darker ending, believe it or not, because, well, hey, I'm me. Uh, but other th- the fact that this movie made me question whether or not we would get it is a serious testament to everything else that goes on here. Because 90% of current films, and I don't just mean big budget Hollywood stuff, I mean the vast majority of contemporary film in general would never even get you to a place where you believe the kid's going to die and you do here like you believe that could be the outcome so last year we did i don't know why i'm opting to compare these two because other than they're both in the horror genre i don't even know what i'm getting at but it i guess i recently talked about comparing something else to malignant and you and i had a really long conversation about the nuttiness that was that movie and how out of the box it was and offbeat and it was, lo- it was a lot of people that mo- that movie has grown on me so much since the initial viewing. Like I well, think I, about that movie sometimes still. And well, I, I get happy. I, I talked about it was kind of like, you know, it was just a gonzo horror movie. And so yeah. people loved it because it was so out there. Um, ne- never mind whatever craft problems it has. It's just so bizarre. People have to love it. And, I, and I'm just curious, Robert, for you to, t- you know, 10 words or less to speak on this. What do you find yourself being more drawn to a movie like Malignant, which is, you know, got is problematic, but goofy, uh, but goofy in all the right ways or something like the black phone, which I think we can all agree is a darn near perfect craft wise uh, horror movie, but is minimalistic. And I think we can all say, and this isn't a slight against the movie, that it is firmly in the box. We're not doing anything in this movie that hasn't been done before. We're just doing it really, really well. Uh, I don't have to choose. That's the nice thing about this. Yeah, but I'm making you. No, you're really not. You're saying, hey, <laughs> here's two things you like. I, I like them both. I, I This is largely an issue of, believe it or not, this is just like, what do I want in the moment? Sure. Okay. Am I in the Am I in the mood for something a little bit more over the top and gonzo, or am I in the mood for something more grounded? 
you know, the, the horror genre is a very big tent in that respect. And if you're looking for something more grounded and, you know, kind of a slower burn and just, you know, creepy, this, the black phone is what you should be watching. Absolutely. Uh, it's really good in that respect. I don't, I don't really have a preference as a general rule. I think you can find more examples of this type of movie done well, as opposed to something like malignant. Um, Sean and I were talking about a 24 movies. I was thinking about X. That's what it was. Um, another really outstanding horror movie that, that was that made from made for this year. Sean and I reviewed X earlier this year in our survey of porn adjacent movies. And we talked about a 24 being one of these really great studios. That's just churning out more wins than, than losses in terms of interesting and out of the box cinema. Um, and then the other one, he goes like, and Blumhouse. And He's that's why I brought wrong. it up. And that's why I brought it up because this is a Blumhouse feature, um, Universal, et cetera. And I'm curious, Robert and then Jason, do you think Blumhouse is, is putting out more hits than misses? I think Blumhouse, if you were to, if we actually go through everything they've released, they're probably closer to 50 50. Mm -hmm. um, that said, when Blumhouse does something right, they tend to be very successful at it. And it tends to get the right kind of reaction out of the audience that they're going for. When A24 misses, you know, no one really cares because most of what they put out is smaller's fair anyway. Sure. When Lamb doesn't quite capture your imagination, your imagination, everyone goes, well, you know, Lamb. Yeah. So in both, in the case of both A24 and Blumhouse, I'm going to, I'm going to put it like this. I think their reputations are inflated by awareness. Yeah. Like, because when they hit, they hit so solidly, you tend to have a better impression of them than if you actually go through their entire catalog when the, when the, again, the narrative of them being just exceptional falls apart a little bit. They're willing to, these are studios willing to take chances on film in ways that the major studios are not. This means that, yeah, they're they're at, their batting average is never going to be stellar, just kind of by virtue of that. But mm -hmm. because they're willing to take some of these chances, we get a high, we can get a better variety of film and we get some high quality film out of it. So, yeah, again, I I appreciate what Blumhouse and A twenty four both do. Uh, so I give them a lot of respect. I give them a lot of kudos. And yeah, they're they're both doing. They're probably it, in, instead of going like number by number. If we want to talk about like, are they doing financially well? I imagine yes. Like when they miss, they don't miss big, and when they hit, they get good returns. So yeah, I would probably okay. look look at hang on, look at something like. Everything everywhere all at once, you know, which was made on a shoestring budget and for what it for what it was made halfway decent money. I'd be be curious. We haven't done this in a while, Robert, but we used to do a show that was just kind of dedicated to studio study. And I don't know if anyone ever gave a shit that we did it, but I enjoyed those talks. I enjoyed doing the deep dives that we used to do. I'd be curious to do one day just kind of do a survey of A24 films and the studio in and of itself. Jason, go ahead. No, I mean. I think Blumhouse has got a stellar background. I mean, if you look mm -hmm. at some of the movies, I mean, Insidious, um, uh, Paranormal Activity series, uh, The Gift, uh, the Unfriended, 
Uh, unfriended and unfriended dark web, mm-hmm. which um, the <laughs> very first, uh, the very first unfriended, it was all right for what it was. Uh, the insidious franchise us was a Blumhouse. Um, the new Halloween movies. The new Halloween movies. Happy Death Day to You, which is a basically a comedy horror movie, I, which those, Amber absolutely loves. Those two films, for anyone potentially interested, Happy Death Day is a bit more straight. Happy yeah. Death Day to You is more comedy, and they are both wonderful. Yeah. Hey, so let's let's uh, wrap up here, Robert. Well, well hang on. Just, yeah. just very briefly going through some of their filmography here. Like they've got a fair number of misses too. Like these are the people responsible for the Tooth Fairy, the one starring The Rock, <laughs> the new Firestarter. Yeah. Oh my new, God. Yeah. That one. Um. God. Ugh. Both the Bay and Dark Skies both really kind of sucked. Um. Mm-hmm. I didn't hate Ouija. Oh, the they did. I mean, Craft I mean, look, the Legacy that ruined did, that entire movie. Yeah, yeah, they did Whiplash, so they're kind of responsible for Miles Teller, and I will now never forgive them. Um. Yeah, the, the Green Inferno is not that good, and I'm I actually kind of I don't hate that kind of filmmaking, but like I said, they've got good stuff here too. Oh yeah, they're yeah. partially responsible for Martyrs. I love that. That is, uh, that is a brutal the, movie. The the remake of Black Christmas fell flat. It really did. Um, but yeah, they've done some stuff with Shyamalan. I mean, they did Split. Yeah, so I mean, they're more on the hit side, but when they miss, they miss big. <laughs> there's there's Qua- very quality really... wise yes quality wise yes financially they don't take a lot of big hits at least no there's uh craft and movie wise there's a very slim gray area so it's either really good or really bad okay. robert anything else about the craft of the black phone uh no nah, it's again we've we've sung its praises where it deserves to be praised i i'm gonna phrase it like this uh, and I don't mean this as a negative. This is not a movie for everyone. <laughs> There's a lot of people who I can think of who would have a real hard time with this movie. You know what's so funny about that is, you know, historically I'm the pansy who doesn't like horror movies. I love this. This is my kind of horror. I I think I've got a feel. Uh, I've as we have as I have needled you about that and gotten to know your taste a little bit better. I think I've got a pretty good feel about what horror works for you and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, stuff like this and Malignant, you know, they're wildly different, but they're both within your wheelhouse about what you can enjoy within the genre. Yeah. You would not enjoy It's a lot of the like over the top gory stuff or a lot of body horror that I think puts you off. Like, I, I genuinely would not recommend you watch the Hellraiser films. Uh, I don't think you'd enjoy them despite them well, being pretty good. We're not going to get to it. And I'm actually surprised. Well, you, you're always so chicken to want to pitch me things which I, I still don't understand but um you know i'm i'm honestly surprised neither one of you has tried to hit me up to do the new cronenberg because you know cronenberg master of body horror like i love the fly as a kid it's gross as shit but i loved it and when we just don't have time but it won't i i, I definitely gave serious consideration to doing the new cronenberg did not know there was a new cronenberg oh, God. oh they, i, I forgot it out i forgot they did dash cam Ugh. All right, go ahead. Jason, Earlier this go, year, even just go ahead and finish your craft review. And if you don't have anything else to say, don't force it. But I, but, but give me a second while I look up the new Cronenberg. No, I mean I don't have really much more to say than we haven't already said. I mean I pitched you some other movies that you know, Robert, if you're willing to hop on that grenade, uh, 
If Mark doesn't have time, you know, smile. I the don't. Invitation. <laughs> smile the invitation. Uh, and there was another one. There was um, a. I, there was a trailer for Smile ahead of this movie. Okay. The new, the new yes. trailer for it's that one. It's of the. It's Crimes of the Future. Uh, 2022 science fiction body horror film directed by David Cronenberg starring Viggo Mortensen. Oh, yeah, Leo I Perdue, see this. And Kristen Stewart. Um, it's not a remake of the other one that's called Crimes of the Future. It's a return to science fiction horror since existence from 1999. And it came out on June 3rd. Yeah, it's like where they're cloning body parts and cloning people to have body parts. Yeah, I remember seeing this trailer. Okay. I oh, did not see a trailer for that. I'll, I mean... We're not that far from it being on a streaming service, so I'll look it up when it hits one of them. Yeah, I was looking at what studio did this, um, and it's looking like, yeah, this could end up anywhere. It's it's all like European studios and shit. Like this doesn't ha- it doesn't seem to have a deal with a major one here in the United States. So, and God, there isn't even a part in the wiki for release. All right. Well, if that's the case, then let's go ahead and move on to. The- <laughs> Hang on, let me put this up for Michelle. You got a need your, your your girlfriend there in the uh in the comments, Team Miles, hundred percent. I like hey, this little it, rivalry you guys have got going now. It's not a rivalry. You're allowed to enjoy whatever you enjoy. I am I'm not even necessarily judging you all that harshly for it. All right, here we go with the second critical review of the evening. Are you ready? I said, are you ready? No, God! No, God, please, no! 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 Alrighty. Uh, The Black Phone. Currently at 84% fresh and 90% for an audience score with over a 1,000 verified ratings. The critical... Yep, the critical consensus reads the black phone might have been even more frightening, but it remains an entertaining, well-acted adaptation of a scarily good source material. I, I I do agree. Like I think we touched on this. There's a way to make this a scarier film than it is. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I'm gonna go ahead and say sometimes you don't need to go for what's the scariest thing I can do. I think focusing on a well-told story that gives you uh, the goosies, as Michelle said, um, might be goal enough. Yeah, right. minimal, minimalistic is is achievable in horror. Yeah. Larry Carroll of Looper.com. Despite some inspired shots and jump scares that will have you tossing your popcorn in the air, lackluster teen acting, fuck you, and yeah. silly lapses in plausibility undermine an otherwise intriguing idea. This is one incoming call that simply can't find a connection. You know, Go fuck yourself. Oh, hang, my God. Hang on, hang on. <laughs> Most of that is trash. We we however we however did yeah. mention that there's a plausibility issue here that I think could have been addressed with another pass with the script. That's fine. We also don't need the incessant punnery that seems to be run rampant in modern criticism. They're just trying to get people to click on the link. Ugh. Um, uh. Andy Klein of Filmly, KPCC, NPR, Los Angeles. I feel like I'd seen this a million times before. Quite frankly. Oof. I. I don't feel that. I feel that this was a very fresh take on the whole abduction genre. Well, you and Kevin Carr, a fat guy at the movie, should go bowling, Jason. Oh. <laughs> Unnerving and visceral. This is a clever take on the hostage film. Okay, hang on. <laughs> because Take I now have 
I look, Mark will be upset at me and will uh, he, he will try to beat me with the belt if I don't yell at Kevin Carr at least once. This is not that novel a take on the genre, on the on the trope of the abduction storyline, right? Like Yeah. It's well executed. I enjoyed the movie. This is not a knock on the movie, but there's not really all that much here that is new and different. It's just done really, really well. Yeah. And and those are not the same thing. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's see here. Ryan Syrick of The Reader of Omaha, Nebraska. The ending involves a reveal that is the absolute dumbest thing I've heard in years, and I just saw Jurassic World Dominion. Oh, get it is bent. A, it is a boring, ugly, stupid film that I regret having seen. Other than that, A+. Plus. Please remove head from ass. <laughs> because this uh, uh, movie, compar comparing it to Dominion, is should require you to go fuck yourself with a broken glass bottle. If you can't understand that elements of the grittiness and the griminess and the quote-unquote ugliness is deliberate, I don't know what to tell you. It's meant to be that way. This is not an this movie does not look the way it looks by accident. Yeah. It's the uh, style and the get you like Mark said earlier, the, the style of the time. time didn't you didn't you see the onions on the belts? It was the style at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't made a Simpsons reference all podcast. I needed to get uh, one yeah, in there. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering if you'd get one in. Katie Reif of Polygon, top critic. The Black Phone manages to preserve everything that made Hill short story so creepy and undermined it at the same time, Robert. That's... I don't agree with the splat, but I think that's actually a... That's a fairly incisive um, review this is the this is one of the problems what you have when adapting short stories into feature length films. You have to try and preserve what makes the short story so good, but some of what makes the short story so good inherently comes from its length. And when you have to stretch that out, you do wind up undermining elements of it. So this is a problem that a lot of people struggle with when you're dealing with adapting what that material to a different medium like this. So I think that's fair in the general sense, believe it or not. Again, I may not agree with the overall conclusion, but that's not that's not entirely inaccurate. Mark, Jeff, say, yes. go go up to the top to the lady that her mother should uh, that her mother should have swallowed so she wasn't born. Oh yeah, and, okay. And read that one. Yep, Christy Puchko of Mashable, top critic. What we're left with is a shallowly shallowly dug exploration of murder and mayhem as if stranger danger and Stephen King have taught us nothing but mundane homage. Okay. Let's <laughs> l let me just do this because apparently people are stupid and have not yet learned this lesson. Mark, you will probably know this. So I'm going to ask you this question on the off chance, because I think you know the answer. Who is most likely to abuse a child? Uh, somebody who was abused as a child themselves. That's not what I mean. Oh, okay. A parent or a well-known person in the family. Someone you know. Okay. Stranger Danger, believe it or not, did a giant bit of harm to uh, 
to this entire discussion because the first thing, look, there's a scene where the kid gets out of the house and Ethan Hawke then runs him down and drags him back. But there's a scene where he does escape. The first thing you should do in that situation is literally go to the nearest house, find someone, even if you don't know them and say, help me. You'd need to talk to strangers, believe it or not, if you're in that kind of position and the discussion or like the, the paranoia around everyone whose face you don't recognize is was wildly misplaced, especially if you look at who actually hurts people. So that, secondly, to the general point here, this kind of stuff does happen, and to pretend that this is just an homage is a giant misread. Thirdly, to bring up Stephen King here in this context, I'm going to assume you have to plead ignorance to who wrote the short story. You idiot. <laughs> Jeffrey Harris of 401media.com, friend of the show. Director and co-writer Scott Derrickson has created a horror experience that builds tension superbly well, anchored by fine performances with talented young leads portrayed by Mason Thames and Madeline McGraw. Everyone, go to 401mania.com and read Jeffrey Harris's superior criticism. Right. He is a gem. <laughs> he is, an, he is yeah. a gem on the infinity gauntlet of criticism. Uh, Jeff, yeah, I, Jeff if, on the off chance you're listening, hope you're recovering from the unknown virus of unspecified origin. Oh, Yeah, I mean... Jeff, he's, he's on the upswing. That. Yeah, Jeff nailed that. I mean, I I fully can agree with everything that Jeff wrote. Yeah, that's yeah, really I, odd. I, I don't always agree with Jeff, but I always respect his opinions and his logic yeah. and how he arrives at his conclusions. So yeah, I and I agree with him here essentially wholeheartedly. All right, we'll do one more of these and then we'll talk about the money and see how the black phone uh, took on Elvis. Uh, let's see here. All right. Tim Roby of the Daily Telegraph UK. The black phone doesn't just dial up Pato oh. revenge thrills as instantly dubious entertainment, but then devises crack handed solutions to every last puzzle it sets. Okay. <sighs> Couple of things here, buddy. First of all, Pedo revenge is not a subgenre. <laughs> Believe it or not, you, you get a couple of movies that do touch on this, but it's not really a subgenre the way that I apologize for using this word. And I apologize to the YouTube gods for getting us demonetized. But since Mark already said something that he said, I feel OK about this. It's not a subgenre the way rape and revenge was. Mm -hmm. It's just not. And for those of you who don't know, that was a whole subgenre of films in the 60s and 70s and partially My in the 80s. Second favorite genre next to nonsploitation. Does not surprise me one iota. <laughs> All oh, right, I'm checking out on that one. French rape and revenge films. Mwah. Just a just a joy of cinema to watch. All right, you guys have a nice evening. <laughs> uh, so I like art. But, okay. Not all of those are art. <laughs> Some of them are. Some of them are. You can tell you can tell good stories around that premise. You absolutely can. Not all of them are. Some of them are cheap exploitation, sure. which is fine. It, which is fine. Like I don't actually care. I'm not taking a moral stance on this, but let's not lump yeah. all of it together no, in either it's, category. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, so it's not really that. The notion that if you can't understand how each individual piece of this relates to the problem solving that goes on at the end, I don't know how to help you. Like that's what it's supposed to do. This is set up and payoff. 
it's setting up all the things that these other kids have done. And I will give you the following, believe it or not. This is my one gripe with the narrative. I do not agree with the kid killing Ethan Hawke. I partially because you can't really break someone's neck like that, especially with the leverage points given and the strength disparity and the relative strength of a telephone cord. Like there's, there's a lot wrong there. This is 1978 telephone cord, which I did take into account. Look, look, when that, when that handset did not shatter the first time he clocked Ethan Hawke with it, I was there. I, I have been around those phones. Those things are sturdy. (laughs) I, I think it would have been better if he still, you know, he's, he's able to attack him and knock him out and then he escapes. Like they, they go just a hair too far with the revenge aspect here. And it, that doesn't quite sit as well with me as you know, the rest of the movie. It feels a little bit odd even. like it, It's a little bit too far on the wish fulfillment side of how we, oh, if only this could end the best way possible. Like, eh, I, I think you just went a bridge too far there. So I, I agree a little bit on that, but the setup and payoff and problem solving that goes into how he escapes in general is very well done. And this is apparently just not a person with a lot of attention to detail or patience within their film viewing repertoire. All right. Uh, with that said, uh, Jason, go ahead and quick do your plugs and then we'll jump into the money. All right. Uh, you can find me over at Mosaic MC at Mosaic Media Company. Uh, where I am a co-host on the From the Cheap Seats Fantasy Football Podcast. We just dropped our latest episode of Running Back. Uh, no, it was Wide Receiver and Tight End Supplier. I can't even say it. Uh, predictions. That, that's easier. Uh, that we predict for the fantasy football community. Um, check us out. Uh, going to be doing some more... Um, content here you can find us on tiktok instagram facebook uh me or ty you can find us on twitter uh definitely go check it out uh and check out the show on youtube as always fellas it's been a great experience seeing you guys and talking some very vastly different movies tonight (laughs) what a day jason what a day see you guys later see ya it's just me and you sweetie Not even going to acknowledge me. Okay. Playing hard to get. I get you. All right, folks. Here we go with the... Ah. Here we go with the money. We're in the money. We're in the money. Oh, look at the size of that platform. <laughs> All right. Um, right. I'm on the wrong page. You for are. The, for the weekend of... June 24th through the 26th. Elvis was the number one movie of the weekend. Snuck uh, El- in over Top Gun Maverick. Yep. Uh, Elvis had a budget of $85 million, despite all of its fancy schmanciness. And it came in and arousing, at the time of this recording, $55.4 million worldwide. So this will be uh, this will be profitable. I don't think it's going It'll... to set the world on fire. But, you know. It's going to have a more limited theatrical window. Again, I think this is on the 45-day window. But... Whatever they're mm-hmm. paying, whatever the streaming service is paying them is probably going to be enough to push no, them to it's, profit. It's a Warner Brothers movie. It's going to go to uh, HBO Max. 
But whatever they whatever they get from that is probably going to be enough to push this over towards profitability. Mm-hmm. It's never it, this was never going to be a gigantic success, but this no. is this is also a this is also more of a prestige picture. You know, sure. as long as it doesn't lose its shirt and does get some award nominations, they'll be happy. Yeah, yeah. The, I no, I don't think anyone at Warner Brothers is upset with Boz Lerman. Um, well, you, <laughs> not for that reason, at least. And then the Black Phone um, had an on the high end an 18 million dollar budget it's already made 36 million dollars again it's not going to set the world on fire it's not, not going to be the world 10 the top 10 worldwide gross but it'll be profitable and that's kind of the name of the game for blumhouse yep. make things on a shoestring budget it, it does good everyone makes money you know and you're not the people at disney currently throwing themselves out a window because of you know light year uh, speaking of which, Top Gun fell, uh, rose actually from the yep. previous week. It was uh, number three last week and it jumped up to number two. Um, the, it, it, we'll get to this in a moment, but it's currently the only film this year that make over a billion dollars. And it's got, and I, I did bring this up, I think, when we talked about Jurassic World Dominion, that uh, the, the executives at Paramount are just bathing in champagne at this point. They are loving life. Um, and considering what utter, what another disaster Paramount has been over the last couple of years and how much money they've lost. Like, I'm waiting. Well, hang on. We're going to have to revisit that discussion when Dead Reckoning bombs, but. Yeah, sure. Uh, Jurassic World Dominion fell from one to three. <sighs> you know, it's doing well financially, but. Considering how big it opened, only dropping 54% is. A, a, that's a relatively strong hold, believe it or mm-hmm. not. Sure. But it's just, it, but again, this is like, this is the, this is the Marvel thing where. These things are designed, or an even better example of this would be uh, the DC films that were made, they were designed, they, the goal was to make a billion dollars, and when they fall short, it's a problem. Yeah, there's a bit of that definitely going on with Dominion. Yeah. The Black that said, Phone... I hope it continues to fall flat. <laughs> uh, the Black Phone debuted at number four. Um, again, not great, but who cares? People will watch it on Peacock, which is not a real service. Oof. Sorry, I said I'm the looking, thing. I'm just looking one more down. That drop for Lightyear, man. Okay, can we just talk about that for a second? So Lightyear fell from two to five. I read on sixty-four um, percent drop. That is bad. It really is, dude. It really is. Um, Turns so, out this movie's not really for anyone. Who'd have thought? Uh, I watched. I read an article on Forbes today, like the ten reasons Lightyear isn't connecting with people. I want to go through a couple of these with you. I can't sure. spend too long on this. We'll be end up here for three hours, but just a couple of these. They minimized the gay kiss thing, um, but they they did link it to a larger issue of there's now been enough of these issues where people people who have a more conservative bent or are just they may not necessarily be conservative, but they definitely don't want to expose their kids for whatever their reasons are. And I'm not here to talk about that. This is a thing that's happening, not a thing I have an opinion on for the purposes of this podcast. Yeah, but they don't want to expose their kids to any kind of LGBTQI uh culture existence anything and so disney keeps trying to do inclusive movies with the lgbtqi community and parents are just like fucking fed up like there's so many other ways to entertain your kids they don't have to show them disney and they're and they are voting by turning disney off and so that's and, and look i'm the following commentary is about the marketplace and the business strategy nothing else for the record if your target audience is young children and their parents, because if you're targeting to young children, you do need to target their parents as well, believe it or not. That's kind of how this mm-hmm. works. 
it might behoove you not to piss off more than 50% of your marketplace. And if you look at the demographics of who's having children, you're pissing off more than 50% of your marketplace with stuff like this, especially when you kind of court the controversy around it. Yeah. So the other thing, and I thought this was a more interesting point, because we, we covered the the gay kiss thing when we actually reviewed the movie. It's a, it's a, it's a non-part of the movie. It's... It's almost as stupid. Now, it's actually part of the movie, but this is almost as stupid as the you can't show white men Joker, they'll riot. White men are dangerous, don't you understand? Yeah. Um, people don't connect to this Buzz Lightyear. This isn't the Buzz Lightyear they know from Toy Story. That Buzz Lightyear yeah. is Tim Allen. And I well, thought that was a really interesting point because it's not something we did talk about. I don't even think we even thought about it, that people are like, oh, there's a Buzz Lightyear movie. Being played by Captain America? No, that's not the real Buzz Lightyear. Buzz Lightyear is a Tim Allen, you know, voiced toy. Not, was, not this guy. I think there was a bit of that. Here's my problem with this, with, with mm -hmm. that. I think they could have overcome it. Sure. Uh, hang on. Just, just, the issue is not just not having Tim Allen back for a voice role. Mm -hmm. It's more what that indicates, and it's more how Disney and their properties have been trending. Like, yeah. There's um, I'm going to quote this guy very briefly here, but uh, the critical drinker just put out his video review of the Obi-Wan Kenobi show. And he was harsher on it than I was. Um, this is one of those times when I don't actually agree with him as much as I have in the past. But why did you even watch it? You're not a fan of Star Wars and I'm not making you review it. <sighs> Longer discussion. Let, let, suffice to say, just let me make my point. Okay. <laughs> Got it. Don't. Don't dovetail this. Let me let me make the point. He actually throws back to a bit of a podcast he had done previewing Kenobi. And he's talking about the um, the character of Reva and her arc for that show. And he says, oh, and by the way, I called this. And then he throws to this video, this podcast that he did with you know, some of the people that he has on his uh, podcast channel. And his something was like, well, OK, gentlemen, it's Disney. So let's apply the formula. Reva is a strong female character of color, so she can't actually be evil. She's being misled, she's being abused, and she will have a great redemptive moment near the end, and this is actually her story and not Kenobi's. And that's what happened. More or less. Like, I, again, I, do, I think he overblows... I, I think he sells short elements of what of the narrative, but... You apply the formula enough times, you can see what Disney's doing, and it's very yeah. obvious. So when the formula in this case comes, beloved character, getting a spinoff, written contemporarily, courting controversy, and they recast the lead, especially when they're recasting someone whose sort of general political outlook gets them a lot of crap from Hollywood. Yes, and right. I'm not saying Tim Allen's the greatest guy on Earth. He's probably not. I am saying... It's not hard to understand why a, a corporation who is trying to lean into a particular political avenue would go with Chris Evans over Tim Allen. All right. Let's move this along. Um, but I did want to address that. I mean, I'm not going to play the sound, but what a bomb Lightyear turned out to be to the, to the point where, like, this is embarrassing for Disney. Yeah, this uh, is a you know, to the same. Here's the only way they can make this up a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
if it winds up driving a lot of traffic on Disney Plus, they might still be able to kind of claim a degree of victory. Yeah, but it's uh, it's but it's the booby prize for sure. It it, uh, it really is like that. That's that's desperately trying to sell yeah. <laughs> from the studio that brought you Jason Bourne. Um, yeah. This is still one of my favorite TikTok clips we ever did. Uh, <laughs> I respect the fact that he's transitioning, but uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Missed Opportunities fell from four to six. <clears throat> Jug Jug Jo debuted at number seven. Everything Everywhere All at Once fell from seven to eight. Bob's Burgers, another <laughs> fell from five to nine. <clears throat> the Bad Guy, six to ten. Downton Abbey, uh, eight to eleven. The Phantom of the Open. The open 16 to 12. Marcel the Shell with shoes on, debuted at number 13. Uh, Sonic fell from 9 to 14. Official competition 22 to 15. Brian and Charles 10 to 16. The roundup stayed at 17. Uncharted 14 to 18. Fantastic Beast 12 to 23 and 19. Mad God. They uh fell from 21, uh, rose one spot from 21 to 20. We had a Lost Highway re release. Lost, you ever see Lost Highway? I did not. Oh, it's worth it's worth watching. It's really a bizarre film. Uh, number twenty-five, Cat Video Fest, sure. Twenty twenty-two, twenty-six, The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, uh, thirty-one, Beba, thirty-three, Flux Gourmet, thirty-four, and Olga at forty-six. Worldwide, obviously, Top Gun Maverick over a billion dollars. Uh, Doctor Strange it crossed the line. It crossed the Rubicon. Doctor Strange uh, is currently on Disney Plus, so yeah, it's not it's gonna done. quite make it to it. Yeah, it's not gonna quite. It's gonna have the same problem as the Batman, just kind of petering out just before the finish line. And well, there's that, Batman, hang on, the, the, Bat, the Batman is two hundred and thirty million dollars away. Doctor Strange <laughs> is about what ten? It's at nine fifty. So okay, so it's fifty, but like mm. there's a world <laughs> of difference between those two points. All right, uh, there's a whole fi- there's a whole <laughs> other film that's financed between those two points. <laughs> Fair enough. The Batman, uh, sorry, Jurassic World Dominion is at number four with 752. Watergate Bridge, a Chinese Chinaman propaganda movie at 626. Uh, Uncharted 401, Fantastic Beast 401, Sonic. <laughs> Come on, people. Robert only a- not, Robert doesn't ask for anything. Hold on. It's not going to happen. I've made my peace with it now. I had hoped. I had hoped very briefly, but... Every time you have hope, uh, Robert, every time you have hope. It never works out. You'd think I'd learn. You'd think so. Um, the bad guys at number nine, too cool to kill at number ten. And hey, Morbius and Lightyear in this order, thirteen and fourteen. Ooh, yikes! Lightyear's <laughs> look. Lightyear's going to overtake Morbius. Not right? by much. Not right? by much. Hang on. Look, look. Lightyear's going into its third week, and it's mm-hmm. not that far behind. Here's the kick in the teeth for Disney. It's probably not going to outdo the Lost City. That's yeah. the kick in the teeth. All right, this weekend. Mm, the big, excuse me. The big wide release is probably going to be yet another million dollar picture. Minions: The Rise of Gru, which is the sequel to the original Minions, which, despite all sense and witchery, made more money in the same year of its most immediate competitor, Inside Out. And to hear Robert and I get into a fist fight about that, check out our a, reviews. It was not a fist fight. I just had to explain to you why that happened. Hey, here's the other thing about that. You want to know what? You want to bet which of those movies sold more merchandise? Minions. <laughs> Thanks, Chris Bailey. Uh, yeah. So the number one movie of this weekend have, will be Minions, and then it'll be unfeatable. Unironically, 
I enjoy the Minions movie. I enjoy the Despicable Me franchise. Like, I genuinely yeah. enjoy those films. I, it, it, I, is, it is well, it is a joy to me to hear you actually like genuinely happy. And the Minions is one of those rare times that that happened in the million. Heck, if I years. I could not tell you why. <laughs> yeah, I look on my kids on my life. I could if someone put a gun to my head and was like, but why does the guy who hate everything like the Minions? I'm like, Ugh. Okay, um, I can tell you. Look, I could actually articulate articulately explain to you why I enjoy the Despicable Me trilogy proper. Sure. Like I know why I like those movies. And I think they're well made. I like I can I can argue that point if you feel so inclined. I I don't. I, I, I that's not just to you. That's like the general. Uh-huh. I am not sure why I had as much fun as at Minions as I did. Like yeah. there's very little about that movie that has stuck with me in the interim. Like like there's stuff from the first from the three Despicable Me movies that I do still think about and remember. Sure. Like, that's that's quality filmmaking. Here's my I don't here's... know what it was about Minions that made me have such a good time watching it, but I did. And I make no we, apologies for looking forward to the next one. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, strangely enough, we had like a we had a really good like pseudo philosophical religious conversation about what was going on in that movie, given that I think the writers were LDS. So that was a big part I of our they are, yeah. Yeah, that was a big part of the review that we did. And that might be why it spoke to you just sort of intrinsically. But I would say the other reason given why I in, given how infrequently my not just my faith in particular, but like even Mm -hmm. let's just take this away from my faith and just like it's so rare the for the last like 10 years to find movies that take to find wide release big budget movies that mm -hmm. take the search for faith and like the as, as a serious thing and don't diminish it demean it or insult anyone over it like you, right. you don't see that very often. We are fast approaching Northman time here. Yeah. yeah. Um, so minions will be unseated by Thor, Love and Thunder. Probably. Uh, that'll probably repeat as. Can I just? The, say, can I just big, say? Hang, I, on, I, hang on. Hang, no. Right. The big wide release for the fifteenth is where the Crawdad sings, which we are going to be reviewing. But no one's going to see that. It's it's, it's a Sony. It's like like the Sony version of an indie film. I, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's. It'll do okay, but yeah, Thor's gonna Thor's gonna double peat, uh, yeah, pretty easily. Uh, July fifteenth. However, it will then be unseated by Nope. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Back up just a sec. Back up yeah. just a sec. Yep. You see that other wide release? Wait, on July twenty second? No, up a little further. Pause of Fury. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I and Outside shot. That's all I'm saying. Hey, man. Out, like, my kid cracks. My kid cracks up every time he sees the trailer. You're not wrong. I, I, I'm not calling it. Mm -hmm. I'm saying if it does, I will not be surprised. That's what I'm saying. All right. Um, and then I think the 29th uh, DC League of Super Pets ends up being the number one movie of the weekend. So Probably. that is where. So that is where we are. Um, as great as. Uh, the Black Phone and Elvis were, they will be quickly forgotten this weekend coming up. But not quickly forgotten are our plugs. Uh, this week, yesterday, myself and Sean concluded our look at queer cinema for the month of June, Pride Month. We looked at Benedetta, for those of you who like your naughty nuns. Brokeback Mountain, one of the best movies I've ever seen. Highly recommend. Oh, and you would. I did. I, I gushed about it. 
and uh, my my own private Idaho, which I think is worth a watch just to see Keanu Reeves really bust out his acting chops. But and and to a lesser extent, River Phoenix there ain't much else there. Um, and then uh, tomorrow we will be doing a morning recording, a review of AEW New Japan Pro Wrestling Forbidden Door. Uh, but I'm not doing anything in the evening because I will be in St. Petersburg at a speakeasy watching burlesque dancers because my life is saucy. Um, That's one um, adjective you could have gone with. Sure. Uh, I, I, the very thing is what I said. And then uh, we're wrapping up this week's recordings with a review of Star Trek Lower Deck Season 2, which apparently is like 100 rating last time I checked on Rotten Tomatoes. It's It's surprisingly good. Saturday, we'll be doing a we're going to have a potty at my place. Myself and the Podsman are going to be doing a live commentary for Money in the Bank. We haven't done one of those in a while because I got busy. But we're going to bust it out. We're going to unzip and bust it out for uh, Saturday night's WWE Money in the Bank. So check what out all What a of those. lackluster pay-per-view. <laughs> yeah. Uh, next week's Damn You Hollywood. Uh, we're back to just one movie again. It's going to be Minions Rise of Gru. We'll have a review of said Obi-Wan Kenobi. And uh, unless I'm not... Unless I'm busy yet again and I have to rearrange my schedule, we'll be reviewing Ailstorm, Seventh Rum of a Seventh Rum. Ailstorm! Uh, Ailstorm! That's all coming up on the Rattlers and Broadcasting Network. And now to tell you about all the things, Robert Winfrey. I also disagree with you about Nope taking the top spot that weekend, for the record. Eh, I'll, I'll be in Cleveland. I don't really care. You'll be in Cleveland? Why? Just oh. why? All right. So I'm taking Jesse on a sexy date. Um, it, there's nothing about Cleveland <laughs> that deserves that adjective. I'm. It's the date itself is sexy, not the city. Uh, Rage no, be, Cleveland is sh- going to ruin it. You shut the fuck up. It's um, Cleveland. <laughs> it rocks, and that's no, what I'm trying to tell you. It really doesn't. Drew Carey lied <laughs> to a generation of us. Well, we are kindred spirits in that sense. Listen, fuckface, I got tickets to go see Rage Against the Machine. They weren't coming anywhere near Florida. This is their re- they, they, remember Rage Against the Machine broke up. Members of them formed like Audio Slave and shit. Um, and then another group they did was Prophets of Rage with okay. Chuck D and Be Real of Cypress stop, Hill. Stop, stop, stop. Yes. Here's all I'm gonna say. Yes. I hope you have a good time. I will. Rage Against the Machine can eat my whole ass. I understand your kinks, and I'm not shaming you. My problem here is that I they weren't coming anywhere close to Florida. Not Georgia, not North Carolina, not Alabama, not Mississippi. They're they taking coming... a principled stance, don't you understand? I don't blame them. Um, so they weren't coming anywhere near you close should. to Florida. Like, but I... <laughs> But I, really am, but I am killing in the name of with my bomb track on the Gorilla Radio, don't you understand? So I loves me some Rage Against the Machine. I desperately wanted to see them in concert. So a million years ago when I bought these tickets, it was like, well, where are they going that I can get to? And we was like, well, we have friends and family who live in Cleveland. Uh, Jesse lives in Ohio. I needed someone to go with. So our, our summer vacation is sunny Cleveland. And I will be taking a detour out of said week-long vacation with my family to take Jesse on the sexy date to the field house to go see the reunion tour of Rage Against the Machine. Your family will <laughs> never forgive you for taking them to Cleveland on vacation, nor should they. Yeah, my, my family has issues. All right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you deflect my saying about my, my telling my saying that this is like. I mean, for God's sake, you could at least have gone to Cincinnati. 
<laughs> WKRP in Cincinnati. You're plugged. You may as well go to Toledo in Cincinnati. <laughs> I'm going wherever Rage Against the Machine is. Are you not getting this? Okay, can we not bullshit for the next three hours, lover? Can we just get on with this? Cleveland for vacation. I'm just not going to get over that. I'm going to seriously and I will, do your plugs for you. I will Look, I'm never going to let you live that down now that you've told me about it. So thank you for that particular gift. It will continue to give for years to come. Uh, as for my plugs, I cover professional wrestling a handful of nights a week over at 411mania.com in the Wrestling Zone. Monday, I covered Monday Night Raw, actually, because the normal you guy. You poor bastard. I may be going to Cleveland, but that seems like pure torture. Monday Night Raw is the Cleveland of television programming. <laughs> it's well, a lot of the same well thing. Said. It never wins any awards. <laughs> okay. You just kind of, while you're there, you just kind of want it to end. All the good, te- all the good teams and players leave. <laughs> Are you drunk? What's, get on with this. But no, no, now I can't stop. Oh my god! I'm, I'm just now thinking of all the wrestlers who have left Raw and done better elsewhere, and I could liken it to so many sports figures from Cleveland's history. Oh man! I haven't slept more than three hours in like two weeks. Please get this done. Uh, that sounds like a you problem. Anyway, so I covered Monday totally Night Raw. Is. After that, I wrote up my report for AEW's Dark Elevation. Again, those are both in the wrestling zone of 411mania.com. Thursday, my review for whatever MLW is doing. MLW, the best booked promotion maybe in the world. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate it. (laughs) It's no longer here. That was like hours ago, by the way. I believe you. Mm. Uh, Anyway, MLW, one of the better booked promotions, but boy, is their cupboard bare in terms of talent. So curious to see what they'll be doing. They've got... They got some bigger stuff coming up, so they're putting out a pretty decent product. Friday, I cover WWE SmackDown, so be on the lookout for all of that. Uh, this will be the last SmackDown before Money in the Bank, so I get both go-home shows. Uh, that'll be fun. Uh, and Sunday, I will be covering... Sunday, Saturday, I'll be covering UFC 276. Two title fights, Uh one middleweight title fight between Israel Adesanya and Jared Cannonier, and the trilogy fight between Alexander Volkanovsky and Max Holloway. Very much looking forward to both of those. It's a pretty solid card. So that will be in the MMA zone of 411mania.com. If you want my full preview, I host the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. That goes up Sunday evening, Monday morning. So this one has a full review of last week's uh, UFC event and a preview of UFC 276. So feel free to give that a listen if you are so inclined. Anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can type in 411 Ground and Pound, and my stuff will come up. You should be able to find me there. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, Mark mentioned next week we get to talk minions, and I get to delight in Mark going, I don't want to live on this planet anymore. Inst- Normally, that's my gimmick, but when it comes to the minions, we switch places. No, well, that was very much only connected to Inside Out. I'm tw- I am at least 50% sure you're going to do the same thing again with this one. There's It'll be nothing... something. Hang on, hang on, hang on. It'll no, be no, there's no else. hang on here. You're, you're so committed to the one time I was like, I don't understand. <laughs> but I didn't understand because, like, how do you, despite the fact that it wasn't the marketing bonanza Chris Bailey, Chris Bailey, Chris Bailey wanted it to be. Inside Out was such a wonderfully marvelous, resonant, emotional movie, and it got beat out by the guys shaped like pills doing dick jokes. Like, I didn't understand. There's nothing okay. like Inside Out this year. Nothing. Look, I don't know what your issue is going to be, 
Like th- this is for some reason, I feel like the minions in general are like our version of the WWE going to Canada. Everything's reversed. It's bizarro land. No, no doubt. And, and look, and, and I just kind of hope it does again because I like the gimmick idea in my head now and I want it to continue. I'll just, I'll just make something up. I don't understand. How did Minions beat Morbius? All right, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> for, for, for Robert I'm pretty, sh- I'm pretty sure if we opened up a Patreon, we could beat Morbius. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. Tap Out. That Ta- movie. I'm tapping. Be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>